This is like fantasy okay. football, but for time travel. I don't know what fantasy okay, football sure. is. I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast. Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest. This month we're discussing Johnny and the Bomb, or as I like to call it, Johnny and the Very Well Earned Tea Break. (laughs) And our returning guest is author Will Kostakis. Welcome back, Will. Thanks so much for not learning your lesson the first time. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, we've got you back to talk about a children's book this time, so I can't possibly go too far off the rails. I'm just thankful you haven't chosen Terry Pratchett's second worst book after <laughs> forcing me to read his worst. So, oh, look, so I'm, harsh. What do you think his second worst one is? I don't know. Can uh, uh, just the bad one was so bad. I think it just sort of well, he was just he broke the bank. He was learning how to write. Like that's what that book was. Based on your reaction to Dark Side of the Sun, I'm going to guess you probably wouldn't like Strata very much either, which is his other really early sci-fi one. So you know. So you want to come back for that one is what Ben is saying. Yeah, do you want to re- <laughs> No, we won't, Look, we won't put you through that. I love to listen to myself back on podcasts, so I will accept any and every gig. So <laughs> no, I'm making a note there. Um. <laughs> but you enjoyed this one a lot more, didn't you? Yes, um, I did. Didn't you? This, reading the whole trilogy was definitely a much funner experience than whatever that other book was. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, look, I was going to ask how you've been, Will, but I mean, I don't think anyone wants to talk about that at the moment, do they? Look, it's it's been an interesting time. You have all those patronising people who come up to me going, oh, Will, I bet you've been writing so much this year. Ugh. And I have, but also it's felt like my brain has been melting the whole time and all the things I do to get creatively unstuck or to fill my creative well, going outside, talking to people, socialising, actually having, you know, meaningful life experiences. We're doing none of that in 2020. So it was, I always had this fantasy in my head that I didn't like touring and that I wanted to be one of those authors who sat at home alone and wrote with his cats. And well, now I've had an experience of doing that for a year. And I'm like, no, this is not pleasant at all. Like, no, I need to be out there and writing when I just happen to find time for it rather than just being a nine to five all day, every day writer. So look, it's, I've learned a lot about myself. Haven't really enjoyed it, but I'm hoping, 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 hoping we can get back to sort of normal author touring next year. Hmm. Fingers crossed. Yeah. There's a lot less, um, writer hermits than there were in 2019. I feel. Oh yeah. So I'm just picturing you in like the Roald Dahl like hermit shed, like you know that shed that he works in where it's just like a fire trap and he sits in a chair surrounded by stuff and just writes all his books. Have you you seen those pictures? It's just I've seen it and it's just, yeah, no, I 
It was, I have been writing on an ironing board that I've had to move around the house about seven or eight times a day just so I feel like I'm looking at something different. Because before COVID struck, I got into the habit of I would walk to a cafe and write for an hour, then walk to the gym and write for three hours while everyone stared at me like, why are you writing at the little small like welcome desk at the gym? But then that would you know, motivate me to, I finish writing for three hours, I can go to the gym and then I can walk somewhere else and write and then come home. But um, trying to make my house seem interesting and inspiring is just not a thing that happened. <laughs> Plus, you can only write short stories on an ironing board. There's only so much ironing board. <laughs> I hate you. I uh, hate the, you. I waited your whole story to say that too. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, I feel we should get on to the book we're here to discuss before anything else uh, ironic happens. Um, oh, no. <laughs> we should start, as we always do, with a reading of the blurb. There was a flash of light, the air flickered, and the world changed. It's May 21, 1941, thought Johnny. It's war. Johnny Maxwell and his friends have to do something when they find Mrs. Tachyon, the local bag lady, semi-conscious in an alley, as long as it's not the kiss of life. But there's more to Mrs. Tachyon than a squeaky trolley and a bunch of dubious black bags. Somehow she holds the key to different times, different eras, including the Blackberry Blitz in 1941. Suddenly now isn't the safe place Johnny once thought it was, as he finds himself bound up more and more with then. That's a, I don't know if that's the best blurb. I like it. But it's... Why don't you just say, it's a book about time? I mean... <laughs> you could make it sound more exciting. And, like, there's a lot of assumed knowledge about Mrs. Tachyon. If you just pick that up, you'd be like, whomst? Whomst? And why should I care? But, um, <laughs> like, that's not the problem of the story. That's not... Oh, it doesn't even really set the scene particularly well. Like, no, it's not as great as blurb. I mean, you know, the call to adventure is, so to speak, is, oh, there's an old lady who's fallen over in an alleyway. We've got to do something. Yeah. But that's not really it. Like, that's the preamble. It should be more know? like Johnny Maxwell and his friends are standing on Paradise Road. Problem is, Paradise Road got bombed 50 years ago. Or is it tonight? Like, something like that. That You need to, like, that's the crux of the thing. There you yeah. go. Hey, uh, Pratchett Publishers, um, you should contact us, get us to rewrite all of the crap blurbs. For money. <laughs> we, could, we could do it. Yeah. To be fair, most of them are pretty good. This is, this is an exception rather than the rule. If you were going to pitch it, how would you pitch this book to kids if you wanted them to read it? For me, what's interesting is that they go back in time and stuff something up or they lose their friend in time. Like, I get that's almost the midpoint of the story, but the pacing of this story is quite odd. Well, he's, he doesn't do like that really typical three-act structure that's quite rigid. But here I would say, look, you just lost your friend, you know, in time. Do you go back for him? Like something quite small and punchy like that. I think that's that's mm. the in for me. Yeah. Because it is a difficult choice. And then the way they deal with that is like the crux of the whole second half of the book. So Yeah. Yeah. They really burger it up. Yeah, they do. Um, it's a real burgery look, book, actually, like, if you think about it. Like, burgers are a big thing through the whole book. Uh, yeah, that's true. That started to bother me towards the end because, you know, Big Mac's called Big Mac. Mm. But they never mentioned the obvious burger chain. But I, I guess, you know, the idea is it's a small country town. They don't have one. They only have the local place. Maybe they'd be too litigious as well, like, if you specifically say the thing. 
Yeah, that might be. There might have been lawyer advice involved. Um, yeah. A bit like, I mean, it reminded me of famine in Good Omens, running the the international fast food joints that have no nutrition in any of the food. Yeah. <laughs> but look, let's uh, let's get into the plot. It does start with Mrs. Tachyon, but not Mrs. Tachyon now. There's a whole bit at the start which is but set. What is Mrs. Tachyon now? There is no well, Mrs. Tachyon now. What? <laughs> We'll get we'll get to her. I've got questions about her, but uh, <laughs> let's start at the start though, yeah. which is the Blackbury Blitz when a bomb fell on the town of Blackbury, which is not near London. So this is a bit unusual. It's far enough away from London, in fact, as we find out later in the book, it's a place where they send evacuated children from London. So it should be safe. But there was one incident where it was bombed during the war on. May 21, 1941, and the book starts in the aftermath of that evening. And there are some beautiful lines in the opening here. Like There were some of the best lines in the book, I think, in the first two pages in the way that he describes a, a wartime England. You know, it's interesting you say that because I agree, but also I was thinking about this because I saw a thread, I think it was on Discworld Reddit or somewhere on the internet where people were talking about you can tell a Terry Pratchett book by about the second or third sentence. But this one opens fairly innocuously. Like, the first few sentences are just very straight-up description. And they're well-written, but they're not anything extraordinary. And then as you get down the page, there's some really great lines in there. I think something like, On the horizon, in the direction of Slate, the thin beams of searchlights try to pry bombers out of the clouds. And I think that's really nice. It's not like it's also horrifying, but, you know, it's nice. But, yeah, it doesn't feel like a Terry Pratchett book, probably because there's not, like, a boring screed about a turtle for about seven pages, but, you know... <laughs> <laughs> and where it's like, this is a story, but it's not an ordinary story. This is a story about a boy and a trolley and a cat. <laughs> <laughs> it happened to a friend of a friend of mine. Yeah. But to be fair, the way he breaks every storytelling rule is usually entertaining. Although <laughs> you don't seem all that entertained by the turtle hijinks. That's the vibe that I'm getting from you right now. I usually like his openings. It's just when there's just too much about the turtle. I'm like, I've read this. I've read this. Seven times. Like, it's... <laughs> but how else would you know it was on a turtle? You can say that in one okay. sentence. Okay, we don't... It's all right. Look, we're not, we're, it's not even a Discworld book when we're talking about it. That's how much you hate it. Yeah. Um, Just put a picture of a turtle on there and then the, the description is implied. Um, <laughs> Have I yes. revolutionized books? <laughs> Uh, yeah, what if what if the whole book was made up of pictures? I mean, you could still have some writing. Maybe you could put them in little balloons so that people could tell who was talking. I've regressed us to cave that catch on. What if we just watch the BBC adaptation of this and that's it? <laughs> I can't uh, believe I didn't uh, know about that. Like that's just we, Liz. We've talked about it on the podcast. There were two. They also did uh, ITV did one of uh, Johnny and the Dead. I don't listen to things. I. <laughs> You heard it here, folks. Liz does not listen to me on this podcast. What? Um, no, that's fine. Why would you? Uh, let's get back to this book, shall we? Um, yeah, um, let's get back to Mrs. Fowler Ron. She does say Millennium Hand and Shrimp mm. twice in this book. Mm. It might have been in the annotated Pratchett file, but someone sort of mentioned that she's clearly tuning in to the same frequency that Fowler Ron tunes into. Mm. Uh, and there's another character who says it in one of the books as well. So, because Falaron is not the first person to say it. Mm. It's an interesting turn of phrase. But yeah, we start off in Blackberry. Uh, just, to, just to paint the picture, there has been the bombs. Uh, they're mostly exploded, but there's one unexploded bomb in the wreckage of a house. And a policeman is sort of doing his patrol at night. 
and he comes up to the army truck where they're watching the unexploded bomb to make sure no one sets it off. And they realize that Mrs. Tachyon is rummaging around in the wreckage. Um, and she dislodges some bricks. I wasn't 100% sure if it was her or the policeman and the soldiers who were trying to coax her to come out of the ruins. But anyway, someone knocks a brick that lands on the bomb and sets off its mechanism, which results in one of my favorite lines in the whole book when he says to the soldier, how long does it take once it starts ticking? And uh, he, <laughs> and then there's no one there. <laughs> the soldier's already gone. And then it says the policeman ran after him and was halfway up the ruins of Paradise Street before the world behind him suddenly became full of excitement, which is a nice parallel with how Big Mac feels about the bombs falling later in the book, I thought, but clearly not meant to mean actual excitement. So that's our, you know, our kickoff. And then we come back to the present when things are not great for Mrs. Pacquiao because she goes back to the present. Presumably as a reflex. Because, I mean, look, we know by this state, like, we know immediately in this book she's a time traveler. Like, just in case you didn't get it already, they mention in 1941 she's got Tesco's written on her shopping trolley. And we've already met her in the previous book, so we know she's from, you know, the present. So it's, it's, it's not disguising that it's about time travel. And the, blessedly the characters do not take too long to catch up to the fact that this is what's going on because that's one of my bugbears in any kind of book like this is when the characters deny the supernatural thing that's happening for just a just too long yeah like like a third or a half of the book is way too long <laughs> like let's get on to it that's yeah. why i'm reading a fantasy book i'm not here for the i mean i'm here for the other stuff as well but i'm also here for the fantasy let's get into it and then we meet johnny and his friends who are hanging out and have just seen some sort of time travel movie. It's kind of implied, I think, that it's Time Cop, which is the Jean-Claude Van Damme, I think, starring film. What do we think of the the gang in this book? They've matured a bit, like, because, mm-hmm. like, they're still, like, doing their hijinks and their, their words, but, like, I think they're sensitive for a certain degree of sensitivity about how Johnny is struggling mentally at the moment. Like, they're not extremely kind, but I think the them of the first two books wouldn't have been as understanding, perhaps? Maybe I'm being generous. I don't know. What do you think? I think maybe their understanding of Johnny, but I would push back against them maturing in any way because, <laughs> and it's it's one of my bugbears of the trilogy as a whole, and I'm sure we'll get to it later, but it's, you know, the, the friends are very much on the edge of the first book. They're the reason for him to have the video game in the first place, and that's it. And that's that's the only purpose they hold in that book. And then in the second book, they're brought to the fore a little bit more, but still quite disconnected from the action. And I liked that in this book, they were actually a part of the hijinks. But the book almost ignores everything that happened in the previous two books. Like Johnny's sort of home life has carried through and Johnny being quote unquote special in some way has carried through. But you had in the first book, Big Mac, you know, really facing the consequences of stealing a car and like being physically ill when he sees sort of the wreckage of the stolen car. And then you come to this book and it's it's one of my favorite lines in the book when he steals the car in the past. It's really, really, really funny, but it's just, it, it signals to me that whether Pratchett was going to go for that sort of really earnest, heartfelt tone that he was going with in the first book more than this one, but he's like, nah, stuff it. I'm going to make the jokes of like peak Discworld. And Hmm. so he goes into, you know, Big Mac is still the same character, but he hasn't learnt from that sort of pivotal learning moment in the first book. Uh, But I was happy to see all of them engaging, you know, together. And I got a sense of who they were 
as a group more from this book than I did in the previous ones where they were just sort of names and I'm like, okay, which one is Yolus? Is he just the one that doesn't say yo? Like, is that it? So I think they all benefited from featuring more heavily in this one. Hmm. Yeah. It's kind of a sitcom logic, I think, with these books in that each book, the situation kind of mostly resets Yeah, as if they'd not had any other adventures. But again, in this one, there's also references to adventures that we don't know about. Yeah. That are only mentioned. Like, there's one great bit where Kirsty says, oh, like, you know, you know the sort of adventure I'm talking about. Like, when you find a wizard who's been asleep in a cave for a thousand years. And Johnny starts to say, well, actually, I did once find a cave with... And then she cuts him <laughs> off. And you're like, oh, not again. Like, because in the previous one, you know, he mentions finding the Loch Ness Monster in the fish pond or something. And there's a and a lost city behind the Tesco's. And there's <laughs> he's clearly had a whole string of adventures that we just don't know about. Uh, and there's little references, you know, like the policeman early on says, oh, you seen any aliens lately? And you're like, oh, <laughs> that's mean, but also accurate. But it is, yeah, it's a kind of a bit of a reset. And you, yeah. also, yeah, like they, they get a bit more character, like they're a bit more defined. There's that whole sequence early on where he goes through and describes each of them. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> Johnny sort of laments that they're just not even very good at not being good at things. And then goes through why that is. And this is a bit of a retcon too, because, you know, Wobbler in the first book is like the one who cracks all of the video games and is a gun video game player. And then in this book, like, he really wants to be a nerd, but he, you know, he breaks every computer he touches. Like, I mean, those two things can work together. Yeah. But I was glad to see the return of Kirsty. I look, I loved the idea of her choosing new names for herself every five minutes. But at the same time, you could tell Pratchett got quite bored of that about halfway through and was like, nope, she's Kirsty now. That it's Kirsty from now on. Um, yeah. But yeah. But I did like the sort of foreshadowing with Cassandra and the whole like seeing backwards and forward through time, which I thought was interesting. Uh, yeah, I didn't think of that. But that does, yeah, there you go. A bit of a classical illusion thrown in. With a K? With a K, yeah. I do love that Kirstie's just kind of this young psychopath. Like, she's not nice at all. Yeah, it's true. I mean, she is the, the nastiest one of them, I guess, in a way. She's certainly the coldest one, which I is a choice. Uh, I mean, it's unfortunate that she's also then the only girl. I kind of think that's good, though, because, like, the girl doesn't have to be nice, but she is, like, she, I don't find her very redeemable. <laughs> Although no. I see a lot of myself in her, like, in, like that oh, line, same. you know, in fact, <laughs> in fact, she was so organized that she had too much organization for one person and it overflowed in every direction. Like, <laughs> that is, that is me. That you, you, you talking to me about this podcast, you know that that is me. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> no, I saw a lot of things in her that I was like, oh dear, is this how I come across? But like, I was just going like, yeah, but it's like that, but more. It's like, yeah. like you have like that element of yourself, but like if there wasn't the other bits around the edge that make you, you or me, yeah. me, it's just the middle bit amplified out. The stuff that softens us a bit. Yeah. She doesn't have that. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I identified most with Johnny and, and Yolas a bit as well. Because I'm a big nerd, but also I worry about things all the time. And there's that great bit at the start where he would find more and more things to worry about. But right now he's worried about his mind. And I'm like, that's like most people in the world right now, surely. Like, <laughs> yeah, I identify with him uh, very much. And his friendship with Kirsty, like, you know, I have I have friends like her. I'm not 
that I'm, I'm not suggesting anything when I say that, by the way, to either of you. Uh, sorry. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> your I friend. It, it's fine. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, fair. Okay. Uh, oh, t- now, that see, that's the sort of thing Kirsty would say. Say, I'm, I'm, I'm just here for the bad Pratchett books and the occasional good one that you let me read. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fair enough. The discussions that they have about the time travel movie and on all the other stuff that happens where they're just sort of, you know, I love that you get this scene of them just nattering on to each other in the way that they do. And you see it a couple of other times later in the book, too. And it just feels very authentically the kind of nonsense that young people talk to each other about, like having been yeah. in the classroom and overhearing this kind of stuff with kids. I'm like, yeah, this feels real. Pratchett knows what he's doing here. But look, they have their they have their discussion. They make some funny jokes. And actually, the other thing I like about these conversations is Pratchett lets the characters be very funny in this book. Like, a lot of the best gags are the things that the kids say, and a lot of the time they're trying to be funny, or they just are witty in their dialogue. And I I really liked that about this. Yeah. It was, reading them in rapid succession, you saw Pratchett going from this almost earnest realism in the first book, realism, I say, in the book about, you know, talking to aliens (laughs) via video games and stuff like that. I do. It was it was far more of a, a straight book, if that makes sense. And it just got as the series went on, he lent into his he let himself be funnier and funnier. Like that first book, he was very much I want to make a comment on war and video games and sort of the, the we're very disconnected from war. And it's funny to see how war has been incorporated throughout the whole trilogy, and that was clearly at the fore of his mind. It's one of the uniting things about sort of the trilogy but by the time you get to the end of the trilogy it's like yeah war is serious but also look at all these jokes we can make about yolus being black like and that's and it's seeing how many of them he can make which felt you know you're skirting the edge of good taste but he was pratchett was definitely letting himself have more fun with this one i think yeah and more for like the age of the characters i think like it felt more realistic to them. Yeah, because they do. I mean, I agree. I don't think they're much more mature, but they do feel a little bit older in this book. Not much, mm. um, but I think they mentioned Big Mac is 14, which makes them a year or two older than the previous books, I think. Maybe they're kinder to one another is is where I was going with that. Like, not overtly, but, like, they fit around each other a lot more nicely. Mm. That makes sense. And they need to be kinder to somebody else, too, because quite soon, as they're walking down the street, they hear a weird noise in an alley and investigate, and they find Mrs. Tachyon, who's unconscious next to her trolley, and we meet her horrible cat, (laughs) Guilty. (laughs) And I like that there's no story about why he's called Guilty. That's just his name. I I dug that. But yeah, they're not sure what to do. Yolus does no first aid, of course. His mum's a nurse and he's a good nerd boy. So, of course, he's learned. They're a bit dubious about this. So, they just end up calling him triple nine. I do like that scene where like, where they talk about how he's trained in first aid, but it's very different when you're in a sort of town hall with a sympathetic person like teaching you how to use a dummy as opposed to in the situation where you find someone. Because I've been in that situation where I've just been walking, funnily enough, to a medical textbook shop. And um, me and my medical textbook friend found someone passed out on the ground. And we were like, oh, um, we've all done first aid, but what now? Like, Because they were sort of breathing and they weren't – people don't fit neatly into the categories that you get taught about necessarily. So we're like, are we supposed to like do resuscitation or whatever? But I think they were just really quite drunk is what was happening here. But 
also a bit injured, so we called an ambulance um, and got advice from them. So it's, it is very, I, I related to that because I'd been in that pretty much exact situation because I was like, I've got all this knowledge, but how do I, how do I apply it? And do you want to give the kiss of life to someone that you're not sure needs it or is a bit frightening? Like it's just, yeah. Yeah. When I was reading it, I sort of initially was like, oh, yeah, you know, it's a joke about how gross homeless old ladies are, but also, you know, that is a real concern. Like you say, like when you encounter someone like in that sort of situation, you do have to think about that, which is why there was, and I don't know what the current advice is because it's been a couple of years. Wait, that's happened to me twice. Twice. Sorry, I just keep thinking of all these times that I've found people passed out. And the weird thing is people just will walk past them. Like, that's like a thing. Like, you'll find someone passed out on the ground and everyone else will be like, no, well, that's that's just like someone sleeping on the ground. And then there's clearly something wrong with them. It's happened twice, actually. Yeah. When you decide to stop and intervene, you are opening up this whole sea of possibilities of what your future will now entail. But if you just keep walking by, I think and this is what I think goes on subconsciously for people. If you just keep walking by, your life doesn't change. Whereas, this, you know, you... If, if you choose to do something about that, you are stepping outside the boundaries of your normal life and you are going to be embroiled in something. It's kind of like, I mean, it's like the start of Neverwhere when uh, Richard stops to um, pick up Dor from the pavement and his partner's like, just call an ambulance and let's get out of here. Like, we're going to be late to this big important meeting. They kind of represent those two options. Like, do the right thing and maybe set your life on some weird course where it goes a bit off the rails, at least briefly. Or don't do the right thing, ignore somebody who might be in need so your life can continue as it was before. And the core theme of this book, like I'm not sure he really sells it, but it's like, you know, going back in time, you're always going to change something to do the right thing. Like, Hmm. yeah. Yeah, I sort of agree, but I also think that we cling very desperately to the idea of normality um, mm. to the point that when something very abnormal happens, we do our utmost subconsciously to try and rationalize that as being something normal, which is why you'll see someone pass out on the street. You'll be like, someone's probably already noticed that or like there's probably a good reason for that, so I'll just keep on walking. That, that's not yep. abnormal. That's kind of where I was going with that, which again feeds into the book with how everyone forgets everything later because you don't want to mess with your idea of how things are supposed to be. Yeah. Mm. Which is a real recurring idea. We've talked about this before in um, British fantasy fiction, but also children's fiction too, but where people forget the weird stuff that happens so that you can then have another adventure where the kids are still the fish out of water who know about the weird thing and no one else knows about it because everyone else has forgotten it conveniently for some reason. Should we call it the TARDIS theory? Because the whole thing about that is people just accept it, that there's just a thing there that wasn't there before, but, you know, it's probably supposed to be there. But that's the thing. I was... When I was reading that, I was like, great, he's actually explaining why they don't mention, you know, his previous adventure with Kirsty. And I was like, excellent, this is good, this is good. And then when Kirsty remembered sort of something reminded her of them going back in time, I'm like, ah, oh, you ruined it. <laughs> so I was, I was reading it from a like, I was trying to make sure all the sort of pieces fit. And they, I think they sort of fit, but I think, you know, Pratchett does that wonderful thing. You know, he does where, you know, the same way sort of Shakespeare does it, where you just, he just sort of like messily sort of waves his hands over the cracks. And it's like, no, no, it's fine. It's all good. Here's some sort of flourish to make you forget about all that because you're having fun. Kind of like a magic trick where, you know, he just diverts your attention and you're like, yeah, I know what he's doing, but I'm enjoying myself. There's a crack in the wall, but instead of spackling it, we're going to put a painting over it. Yeah. <laughs> hey, look, that works very 
successfully. I've lived in many share. No, that's it's never works. Um, that's <laughs> no, fine. It's fine. But look, they do find Mrs. Tacky on like call triple nine. She gets taken to the hospital. They decide to look after her trolley full of all the weird squishy bags. I love the way they describe the bags as like as if they're full of goo, and then later on they sort of make weird noises and like they're just yeah they're weird. I hate it. Um, it's gross. And then this is where Kirsty comes into the story because the next day both Yolas and Kirsty phone up Johnny and say, look, people are a bit suspicious about what happened to her because she's got like bruises and stuff all over her and they're worried that someone might have beaten her up and someone reported that they saw a gang of youths uh, yeah. near where she was found and one of them was black, which is a recurring <laughs> comment that comes back, um, which I, I thought is a much more knowing, like I, the way that he talks about Yolas being, being black or being a person of colour yeah is much more knowing and informed in this book, I felt, yeah. than in the previous ones. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I also did enjoy that Yolas was the one that originally called to flag this as an issue, and then Krusty calls like two minutes later when Johnny was already about to do something about it, but sort of was like, oh, what would you do without me? Like, I'm the one who's figured this out, and he just kind of like lets her have that. Yeah. It's- yeah. Look, Pratchett often tells you what he's doing and sort of almost bludgeons you over the head with it. But I think with, especially with Yolus in that instance, when you have, you know, just that repetition of, oh, one of them was black, like there was no other comment there. And he just sort of let that say everything, which I really, really, really enjoyed. Mm. Well, mm. enjoyed as much as you can enjoy seeing racism on the page, but you get my drift. I think he handled it well in this book because there were moments in this book where, like, he'd use one line and it would slap you in the face and you'd be like, oh, yeah. that's not, okay, right. But, yeah, subtly not, he didn't go back over territory, like, five times in one page. You'd, he'd let the one line do it. I mean, I also thought it was very important and good that he established that sort of current racism before mm-hmm. we go back into the past and see the sort of overt racism and so that you know the reader has an understanding that this is not you know it's changed but it's not gone Mm. uh but this that second chapter is also where we first meet the character of sir john who is in these sort of short italicized passages over the next few chapters um and in this one he's sort of talking about how he survived the blackberry blitz he was like one of the only survivors with his goldfish who are named adolf and stalin which i thought was I don't know how I felt about that. I was like, okay, I can see someone during the Blitz doing that, but it seems weird to keep them around later. I guess we have a very different tolerance level for people saying funny things about Nazi stuff these days. We wrote a comedy like six years ago where we had a whole episode about robot Hitlers that went evil. Um, And it was quite clearly not at all sympathetic to anything Nazi related. And in fact, the story in that was all about people forgetting the importance of how awful that was and not treating it with the reverence it deserves whilst we also did the same thing. So it was very sort of, if I'm honest, it was a little bit have your cake and eat it too. But I think I think the commentary in it stood. But now we're like, I don't know if we'd write that because, like, we've got actual Nazis. Yeah. Like, we six years ago, everyone agreed that was bad. And now it's like... Well, yeah, when it's revealed that Big Mac is wearing clothes that basically have, like, Hitler and stuff, like, badges and things of that, I was very surprised. But I don't think... Five or ten years ago, I'd have been as surprised because it would have been like a, a silly, rebellious thing that people who don't really believe in it do, even though it's still bad. But now it's like done in earnest, and that's different. What's well, I mean, you know, he's explicitly described as a skinhead. 
No, but he's trying to look hard and he specifically says that as well. Whereas like, I feel like there's been a shift where it's like, where you're trying to cultivate an image using these things as opposed to actually believing in these things and that being part of your image. I kept flashing back to, so this was released 96, then I was seven years old. And, you know, I I remember being seven years old, eight years old, all the way to pushing high school when, you know, the swastika was something that kids would draw and it wasn't, it was divorced from the meaning of, oh, this is bad. It was that, oh, I'm, it was, it was the precursor to being an edgelord sort of thing. And, yeah. um, so I thought that was definitely in keeping with the character. It was actually like, it was an honesty that I don't think we would see in, especially as, as a writer for teen fiction now, I think most people would just be like, oh, I'm afraid to do that and they wouldn't do it. So, I quite mm. like that I saw that represented because I was I'd completely forgotten about hey that's what kids at my super wealthy private primary school would draw on their rulers and their pencil case because it was like you know an edgy symbol and you know there's the added layer of him being a skinhead and aspiring towards sort of at least that aesthetic and I thought it was really 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 funny to then have him be transported back to the 40s and actually be like, oh, no, this is the meaning of those symbols and mm, him yeah. trying to wrestle with that, in, or not really wrestle with it, but at least face consequences for it when the people in the present clearly aren't making him face those consequences. Yeah, I mean, you can imagine the people in 1996 Blackberry seeing him wearing them and just be like, ugh like thinking it was distasteful but yeah. not really caring about that. And then he goes back to 1941 and people are like, you're working for the people who are trying to kill us and who are evil. <laughs> like, you're going to get shot. And realising that, you know, those symbols do mean something. People wouldn't write it today. I think you're right. But also I think the context is different today. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know that a 14-year-old would wear a swastika without having some understanding of what it means, you know, like the internet would teach yeah. would, would teach you by that age. Whereas I think in 1996, yeah. But if you were writing now about kids in 1996, I don't think you'd include it in there because of the change context now. Like, Yeah, hmm. sure, yeah. I also love that his, like, tough guy haircut from 1996 is just, like, a normal military haircut in the 40s when he goes there. So, like, he's <laughs> stripped of that too. <laughs> Uh, yeah, although someone does say, you know, are you one of them Hitler youths? And you're like, yeah, well, there's a certain resemblance. I mean, that's that's in the DNA of uh, the skinhead movement, unfortunately. I, I also like when they go to visit in the next chapter, they go to visit Mrs. Tachyon at the hospital after they go and make a statement to the police. And it's Johnny and, and Kirsty, sorry, Cassandra, and they meet the uh, social worker. Mm-hmm. And, and like her attitude towards Big Mac as well, which is just like, let's, can we get rid of him somehow? <laughs> like he's just annoying. Uh, like he's clearly not the worst person, but he just causes a lot of trouble. I found her character terrible, actually. Like it's in like, it's a comment about how she started out idealistic like a year ago, thinking all the problems were society and stuff. And now she's just like, oh, the problems are all Big Mac. And I'm like, oh, like, I don't know if I love this. It's a bit mean. Because, like, she's supposed to be kind of on his side and no one in a position of power really is. Like, he's the one who's good at maths, right? But he doesn't know how to show the working, like, how he gets there. And instead of, like, Mm. trying to cultivate that, his teachers are just frustrated. And I just think that's an interesting and kind of upsetting aspect of the plot because 
we're told repeatedly that people keep blaming Big Mac for stuff and he's responsible for like 10% of it, but mm. everyone thinks he's responsible for 100% of it. And so what is the motivation for him to 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 stop? Yeah. Mm. Like he's being failed by every adult in his life, like his brother included, who doesn't have a big mention in this one but did in the last one. So like I think the quiet tragedy of that character is played out subtly through this book, just to get real earnest about that. Yeah, I've got a lot of feels about Big Mac. That's fair. That's fair. And look, you're right. You're right about Ms. Partridge, the social worker. She's not very sympathetic when it comes to her attitude towards Big Mac. It's a tough job. Absolutely, it's a tough job, but she does not come across well. No. What does come across well in that chapter, though, is the discussion that they have when they meet Mrs. Tachyon, which I really enjoyed including that sort of brief moment of connection when she winks at him after she makes some sort of joke and it's like a signal from planet Tachyon to planet Johnny. <laughs> just like, yeah, I like this. Like, they're on the same wavelength in some way. Yeah, and I like that he brings her fish and chips, which is very kind. Mm. Or no, just chips. Just chips, yeah. but And that he's thought about it. You know, like his line is, I thought the thing someone who lost their cold chips might most want is some hot chips. <laughs> and it's it's an essential kindness in Johnny's character that comes back again and again. Like, he saw it in um, Johnny and the Dead as well, where he's, like, he cares. He really cares about other people and doing what's right. Um, and he struggles to care um, for himself, like, and look after himself very well. And where I think this book improves on the previous book is that there are these characters that are introduced, they're just there for the plot. And Mrs. Tachyon is definitely more plot device than actual person. But at the same time, she's so much more fleshed out than, let's say, a very similar sort of situation from the previous book, which was Johnny going to the uh, nursing home to visit his grandmother, where you just get the line of, oh, my grandfather doesn't want to see her now because he wants to remember her how she was. And then we don't really get interactions with the grandmother. She's It's that one scene and then gone, but it was just a reason for Johnny to then go snooping through somebody else's stuff and to keep the plot going whereas say what you will about the jokes it makes at the expense of mental health or at least until the end when it all starts to sort of make sense and it's talking about our prejudices towards those who have different perspectives to us and who experience the world differently but we still have you know human connection between two characters that goes beyond one or two throwaway lines and then oh look let's keep the plot moving mm. so i think it comes down to why I think this one is the better of the three in that every character that's introduced, there's a scene there and there's character dynamics at play at all times. It's not just, okay, let's keep the plot moving because something has to happen. Someone needs to discover something. He's going to discover that. And it doesn't really matter why we're here or what brought us here in the first place. Hmm. Even the chance encounters. So like when Wobbler goes back, and tries to go to his street and he meets people and you, that could be just a fun joke about why the street is named what it is. It comes mm. back later. Like there is heft to it. Mm. And I like that we even get some insight into the grandfather, even though that made it so much more upsetting to me. Like, yeah. You know. So I, I really enjoy this book. It sounds like it's just making me upset, but like there's just, I don't know, there's a, there's an undercurrent of sad through the whole thing. Um, yeah. You know, that's appropriate. It's a book about the war 
it's not a happy time. And on a personal level, it's about dealing with worries. Like Johnny, Johnny's problems are not resolved in this book. Like he, mm. he is worried about his home life. He's constantly worried about everything. There's a great bit early on where it talks about how he's bought like a fly trapped in amber and done a project on it at school and then had a nightmare about it because he's just worried about everything all the time and he doesn't understand yeah. why. And th- he's still like that at the end of the book, but that worry is there b- partly, you know, it also dovetails with his empathy. And I think that's a nice theme, but it's not a resolution for him. I think the real sadness is that, you know, we have gotten really close to Johnny over the course of three books and seen somebody who time and again tries to do the right thing and tries to drag everyone around him who was quite reluctant to do the right thing towards something. And then they forget what they've done. They mostly forget most of their character growth. Johnny still carries all of that. But at the end of the day, people are going to see him at some point like Mrs. Tachyon. And Mm. it'll be if he is in a moment of need and he's bruised and unconscious, then there will be a group of kids in the future who will hesitate to give him the kiss of life. So I see that, I see that sadness sort of that courses through it. And it's, it's an interesting note to leave the series on. I'm not sure how intentional that reading is because mm. it's it's only come to me after hearing you speak about this, Elizabeth. I don't know. Now I'm sad. No. I thought this was the this was supposed to be the funny book. I was I came in here like, oh, it's just Pratchett being funny. Oh, you've oh. ruined it for me. Good. Oh. Is it, it is so funny. There's so much good to it, but I think that's like why it's so effective and good it's realistic in that it doesn't tie everything up nicely like and everyone's just like their life's on track at 14 and they're going to be great because like every single one of them Kirsty included there's some there's some sort of millstone that's going to follow them into adulthood and we're shown that through this book and that's realistic and good i think because when they also trot merrily off and have scones in the garden with scamper like that's that's not realistic so, yeah, I think yeah. there's more value to a book that has emotional heft than nicely tied off emotional endings. Yeah. And Pratchett hates doing that, particularly for his kids' books. You know, like often the Discworld plots or you know, his fantasy books will, you know, the, the main plot is tied up nicely or at least resolved. But his kids' books, like we talked about this when we were talking about The Amazing Maurice and his educated rodents, you know, they keep commenting on how this is not like an Enid Blyton adventure. Like if there are smugglers... They're actually going to punch you and hurt you. Like, they're not just going to tie you up and leave you in an easy-to-escape prison. Like, they're going to do nasty things. And in this book, there's an edge of that as well. Like, until the actual bombs fall, and apart from when Big Mac is is going to be arrested and shot, there's not a lot of immediate physical danger, but there's still, like, this real sense of we could be trapped somewhere where we can't survive or our whole lives could be unwritten or... In Yolis's case, it's like, I'm going to have to live in ultra-racist, oldie-timey England, which is what it feels like to a bunch of kids from the 90s when they go back to the 40s. And it's real. It feels real and feels dangerous. They're always very self-aware, which makes sense. Like, the 90s kids, they've just seen a time travel movie. They're constantly talking about time travel media and sci-fi. And so they're like, this is dangerous stuff. We don't know how it's going to work out. Yeah. Okay, so let's get um English essay about this and talk about the fly stuck in amber that he gets nightmares about because um you could do a whole ted talk on this but like is it mrs tachyon is it what happens in the future when when he realizes that time and place are like 
not as fixed as he thought? Like, is he having nightmares about what's to come? Is it symbolic of the whole book? Like, I feel like the fly in amber is a big thing because, like, Mrs. Tachyon is kind of, like, not really trapped in time. Like, she's just surrounded by, like, a bubble of her own thing that goes around with her. But then we actually have visual later when they deal with the big plot thing and you can see the whole town and the bomb. It's just, yeah, I feel like that is foreshadowing, symbolism, all that kind of thing. You could you could dig a lot out of that for an essay if you wanted to. <laughs> Why, Why do have, you do this to us? They'd have to articulate it in a better way than you just did, but yes. <laughs> well, I will, I'm going to submit you a 2,000-word essay and you're going to have to read it. No. <laughs> I don't read any of your other writing, so why would I read that? <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, but no, I feel like there's something there. I haven't mapped it out beautifully with illustrations and stuff, but I do feel like it does sort of – I don't think it's an accident that that's an image that put in it's, early that he's having nightmares about. It's definitely a story I want to go back to and unpack, and that's – like I always want to reread Pratchett, but I don't think – I've read a Pratchett where I'm like, oh, everything in this seems to be working together towards a thematic goal, whereas maybe I'm just selling Pratchett short and I don't do enough close reading of his work. But this is definitely a book that I'd want to sort of come back to and see what he's doing because so much of it feels so purposeful. Mm. Mm. I didn't read that much into The Fly and Amber. I thought it was both sort of meant to illustrate how upset Johnny currently is that he can have a nightmare about something so relatively mundane or at least unthreatening and also throw in a sort of a fairly vague Jurassic Park reference because there's references to every other 90s film in here that was out at the time. which and I think X-Files. is And X-Files, yeah. There's references to everything that uh, that kids thought was cool or might think is cool. Um which I thought was, you know, which is good because it, but none of it felt like out of place. Like there weren't references that I'm like, well, why you're only putting this in like to make the reference. It's like, no, this, you're putting this in because this is what the kids would think of in this situation. Like it would be dumb for no one to mention Back to the Future when they're talking about maybe rewriting the past. But I, I liked it anyway. But whether it means something or not. Let's get to the time travel bit. That's, yeah, let's yeah. get to the time travel bit. That's a good idea. So the the time travel bit comes, the first bit of time travel comes pretty early because after they've been to the hospital, um, Kirsty and Johnny decide they're going to go and check out uh, Mrs. Tachyon's stuff, which Johnny has hidden in his garage. Uh, they mess with it and accidentally time travel. Johnny goes back to the building of his house and leaves footprints and um, <laughs> trolley prints in the floor of the um, concrete floor of the garage. That blew my mind. Um, and I, I know yeah. it was like so like foreshadow. He's like, oh, as you walk in and there's these old footprints yeah. and there's like the dog prints. There always is. And then we saw it happen and I was like, oh, my God. And I know it's like the most like classic thing ever, but I loved it. I just love it's like visiting an old friend. It was such obvious foreshadowing, but I didn't get that it was foreshadowing. Like, and then when I read it, I'm like, oh, yeah, you're done good. You're done good, Sir Terry. Yeah. Yeah, and he was standing in it, and the trolley was even in its own imprints, and it was just so good, even though, yeah, yeah. I felt like I should have seen it. But, yeah, it just yeah. It, it was wonderful. But it's it's just a really nice moment of going, uh, I, I mean, the, the other thing that's interesting about this scene is Kirsty's the one who just suddenly goes, oh, it's clearly the trolley is a time machine. And then she's, she's right and wrong at the same time. <laughs> and Johnny's just incensed because he's been trying to sell her on this idea that he thinks Mrs. Tachyon's a time traveler because he's been doing this project into the Blackberry Blitz and he knows uh, about stuff that was going on and her fish and chips were wrapped in an old newspaper and all this stuff. And, and she's like, well, don't come up with weird theories. Which is gross because, like, 
back then, like the print used to just come off. They used to have to iron it to stop it from coming off in your fingers. So that's 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 gross. Um, that's a good point. That's a good point. I wonder if it was one-sided newspaper, though. No, they surely wouldn't have been. Surely not. And later on, they talk about page two, which could be like another separate page, but he's only got the one page, and they talk about oh, yeah, the ad true. on the other side. So it is double-sided and disgusting, and your your chips would be covered in ink, and I don't like that. Okay, that's reasonable. Uh, <laughs> that's fair. They both travel two days back in time. To the 3rd of October, which is a classic date that they just love putting in things. Isn't it? Really? It's like Mean is Girls. It? It's like, what's the day today? It's the 3rd of October. And it's like, yeah. Maybe it's a Mean Girls reference. What year did Mean Girls come out? <laughs> 2003, I think. Oh, okay. Well, then, no. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, 3rd of October. A but it's an aesthetically pleasing date. Well, it was, it was a bit of foreshadowing that we didn't realize until we saw Mean Girls and we were like, oh, yeah, it all fits. Perry's on to Mean it. Girls. Maybe, maybe that's a Pratchett reference. Let's get back to the time traveling. We want to get to the time travel. Yes, Johnny has a girl in his it. room, um, and she's being very judgmental about everything. And I was kind of like, mm. well, I mean, so he she- does have like Thomas the Tank Engine wallpaper and a Mister Men lamp, which is embarrassing when you're thirteen or fourteen. I think he's fourteen as well. I think they're all fourteen. But I love that I just- it's like it's cool when you're when you're yeah, nine, 19. and it's cool when you're nineteen. But like you got to like take it down <laughs> in between. Like <laughs> it's. It's, it's like all those kids who bullied me for liking pop songs in primary school, and then we all get drunk 20 years later, and they are the songs that they're singing. Mm-hmm. Not all those edgelord songs that they loved as kids. Pisses me off. Yeah, it's rude, really. I could have been cool. I could have been cool. I know so many Spice Girls lyrics. Like, I should have been. You influenced you cool, them. Will. No one else understood. Slowly, but surely. Mm-hmm. Johnny is frightened of meeting himself because Yolas has previously told him that could end the universe and his previous self comes home, gets the phone call from Wobblerat going to see the time travel movie that they'd seen the night before and almost meets himself on the stairs, but luckily they flash back to the present just in time. I thought that was quite exciting. I enjoyed that because they built it up so much. Pratchett really sort of, without ever confirming what would happen or not happen if Johnny met himself, Johnny's dread of it happening and Kirsty's buying into that, where she's like, I'll just, I'll pick, she picks up the lamp. She's like, I'll just, you know, they taught us to do this in self-defense. You won't feel anything. And I'm like, they taught you how to concuss people. Oh. They do. It depends on what self-defense you do, honestly. Because like, if you've gone to um, certain self-defense classes, they'll be like, okay, so like, these are the moves. You shouldn't do this, but if you did do this, this is what would happen, but don't do it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. It seems like solid advice. Oh, but they, they come back to the present. They go downstairs. And this point is where Sir John has arrived in Blackbury. Now, he's on, previously on the way offered his chauffeur a million pounds to lose the security detail who's, like, looking after him. And he's thrown all his phones and his fax machine. A slightly weird thing to have in 1996, but I guess they were still in use. I, I say that. I used to work in an organization as recently as, like, 2012 that still used fax machines. So, you know. The- Place- pharmacies still have fax machines. The ATO still required you to send some things in via fax until about 2016. It was gross. Well, like in telehealth now, like they get your GP to fax your prescriptions to your pharmacy. And I'm like, there's email. I guess people think it's harder to fake a fax, but surely that's not true. But yeah, he throws his stuff out the window. He's arrived in town. And Kirsty, who's previously been talking about all her belief in crazy conspiracy theories, who fully believes that all these weird things have happened and the government has hushed them up using the men in black, 
is like, it's the men in black. They're here to get us. We've got to get out of here. And, um, you know, sells Johnny on this fear and they jump on the trolley and run off, uh, being chased by Sir John, um, until they're rattling down the hill and they think they're going to die going into traffic where they're, they're going to go into the, the intersection where the big lorries go and they're going to get squashed. And then they suddenly are not in that timeline anymore. They shift sideways in time. Yeah. So before we shift sideways in time, can I pause here? Because they haven't done any time travel yet, right? I'm, I'm, I'm thinking. There's a little bit and of time travel, but not a big one. They've done, just, yeah, just but, like back in a few days. Yeah. Okay. But they haven't lost a certain character in the past. Are we going to reveal Sir John's can, identity we yet? Yet We sure. can talk because it's... Let's talk about because, that now, yeah. Because it doesn't... This is the part where I was like, there is a hole here. I don't think this works. Because mm, of the trousers okay. of so, time. Unless, unless they travelled sideways in the first thing and that's what got them into the timeline where Sir John was. Yeah. And I get that, you know, when they make a change in the, not, I don't want to say future because it was the past, but they haven't done it yet. Mm. And then it changes, it changes everybody else's collective past, but they haven't done that yet. So to be chased by Sir John, Sir John would have to be somebody else, but Sir John knows who johnny is and all that sort of stuff does that make sense or am i rambling yeah no i think so so because he can't be in the same timeline as wobbler but they eventually meet wobbler in the mall so what could have happened is when johnny sees the back of his own head and they get jerked back into their present time they don't actually go to their own present they go to the other knee so they're not where they think they are and so they're in so john's timeline and then when they try and do the Back to the Future thing where they try and hit 88 miles per hour and they go into the mall, they switch again into their own timeline where Wobbler is and that's why yep. St. Sir John's car disappears. So I think maybe that's okay. All right. where yep. that happens. Okay that, makes, okay, that makes sense to me. Yeah, there's that's- almost no time where Wobbler and, and Sir John exist in the same place. Okay. Uh, in fact, no, there isn't. There isn't a time where, where that happens. But they because, had to skip yeah. in that small space, and that's the only way that that would work. Otherwise, it wouldn't track. The okay. weird part is that they they shift from one of the alternate timelines to the other before mm-hmm. they've, like, before in their own personal history, yeah. they've gone back in time and made the change that creates the other one. Yeah. So, so that, which is weird, but I think it, I think it does work. Okay. Um, only if they do that in that one moment. Yeah. But they, which I think they do, like pretty explicitly, because the car disappears. Kirsty's wearing different clothes, um, and there's something else that's on the traffic situation is different. But isn't the the whole thing about time travel in this one? It's not that it's one timeline. It's that you go back and you you make changes to it. Like then, how is Sir John there inspiring them to make changes? Right? How can that be possible? Well, because they've jumped into the other. So, so the thing is, because they've got this weird kind of psychological powered version of time travel. Okay. It kind of merges. So, so there's kind of three mm-hmm. three major models fictionally about how time travel works. One yeah. is you can't change the past. It doesn't matter what you do. The past is fixed. You go back. You can't change it. Yeah. Um, or in some versions, you can't change anything significant. And mm-hmm. that's kind of in this book because, as we'll see, when they go back, there's certain things that Johnny cannot change, but there are some things that he can. Yeah. Um, and, and some of those changes are pretty significant. Mm-hmm. There's also, there's then there's the version that you can make changes and that just changes the one track of history. So when you go back to your own present, things are different. Mm-hmm. That's your back to the future version. 
Yeah. Whatever you've changed, that's the current version of history. There's only one. When you go back and change it again, that's the new version. Yeah. And then there's the idea that you create alternate timelines mm-hmm. and you can kind of somehow get between them, which is this sort of parallel universes version. Yeah. And this book has versions of all three of those things kind of mashed together, which I kind of like because- they kind of talk about how they don't really know how it works and they keep talking about all the different ways in which it works and they kind of eventually figure out what they've got to do to make it work for them. Yeah. And it is, I think, logically consistent okay. in its own right, but it's a sort of a- I like it because it feels like a unique amalgam of those things. Yeah. Because you've got time travel, which is sideways, where you go into a different timeline without creating it yourself explicitly and then later on they go back in time and create that alternate timeline yeah. so that it exists- and then also time kind of heals itself and stays largely on the same track, even though they have made some changes. So there's a, there's a bunch of different things going on that I think all nicely work together. Yeah. Or is well, it just that, like, there are multiple realities where all sort of things have happened and they're all fixed, but moving back and forth through time, you have to do certain things to make sure they all stay. Like, so, so there's a reality where Wobber becomes Sir John. There's a reality which is where um, Wobber stays normal and is the one that we're used to in the Johnny books. And then there's another one um, that they're in now where the road doesn't get blown up. But all three will have happened, but Mm. the communication happens between the three different timelines when they jump between them to make sure that these three happen as they should. Like, so, like, it always happened. There's always been these three options. Like, there's probably more than three options, but um, the communication that happens between them is to ensure that that things that already happened do happen. So it's all fixed all the time and no one actually has any autonomy. But mm. like Wobbler or Sir John has always had his timeline and he always told them that they had to go back so that the other timeline happened as well. And they always had to go back to make sure that the, the road not blowing up also happened. Yeah, I think I think that's part of how this this version works is that... But so it's all fixed. Well, it's not all fixed, but it all is is logically self-consistent. There's a recurring theme where sort of Johnny talks about how you've got to do the right thing. We're always affecting what happens in the future, which is a really lovely line that I really enjoy. It's something that doesn't come up often enough in Doctor Who, but occasionally comes up there too, where people point out that like, hey, but you can't do stuff in the past. He's like, why not? You affect the future all the time when you're in your own time. Uh, And this is that same thing here. But I think it, there's that idea that, well, you've got free will, do what, do what you can to make things better. And, you know, this, this book is about that. So I don't think it ever is saying that they have to have done things. And they, whenever they start to go down that road, there's a, there's a bit where Kirsty says, but if we try and solve this problem, what if us trying to solve it causes the problem? And he's like, yeah, I thought about that, but we, we can't think like that or we'll never do anything. And the fact that they do effectively change things, I think, shows that they could have done something else and things would have worked out a bit differently. Drew a diagram. <laughs> anyway, you, I, I you think You just it made that face, you know that gif of that woman who's like doing math, like making the facial expressions and the maths is sort of imposed <laughs> over her head? That's all I was watching right then, but it was like the cat lady version of that, which I enjoyed. Mm. Look, no, no version of time travel really ultimately works properly it's it's quite difficult and i used to get quite uptight about this because time travel is one of my favorite fictional conceits yeah i think that if it was real like probably it would be a version where you can't change anything significant and the only reason you get away with changing insignificant things is actually nobody really knows what happened apart from the big obvious stuff um beyond a certain level so you can get away with changing details that nobody knows about because really they were always the version that you knew about so there's various ways to think about it 
Mine is the infinite alternate realities ways, though. Like, every time you change something, it just splits into two ways where it did or it did not happen. And so, like, there's always one where, like, you didn't have the impact and there's one where you did. And either one you're in is the correct one because that's the one you're on. And there's just infinite ones. Yeah, it's kind of implied that there's not two versions of Johnny, Kirsty, Yolas, and Big Mac in this book because we only ever meet the ones from the original timeline who move into the other timeline where Sir John exists, and then come back home to their own timeline after they've altered it a little bit. So I don't I don't know if there is another Johnny in the other timeline with Sir John. It seems not, because they come back explicitly to that timeline later. Or he could be like the Crestomancy, where he's the only one that has the memory that goes across all of them, but everyone else just sort of settles into the original spot. I don't think we're going to solve this. Well, I think, yeah, look, I think I think it makes sense in the book. I enjoyed how Ben initially sort of explained it, and I'm like, okay, I'm totally on board with that. I think that's supported by the text, so I'm going to just accept that and then hopefully not have it shattered when I reread it. <laughs> yeah, well, or when I fax you my diagram. So, Yeah, well, yeah. your brain diagram that you were just like... No, I, I literally drew a diagram. It's here. Oh, I thought you were doing it with your eyes. Oh, okay, that's... Hmm. No, but I think, Liz, your, your thing where you explain that, yes, they go into the other timeline and then come back mm. is why it is self consistent you know like yeah. they they're either in the the wobbler timeline or they're in the sir john timeline and those two characters are never in the same timeline together which is what makes that work let's get to the big time travel because it's big time travel time they skip into the other timeline to escape from sir john in his scary big black car steer the shopping trolley full of time bags into the mall where they meet the others and the security guards get suspicious of them dragging this bag lady style shopping trolley through the shopping center and Johnny undoes one of the bags and later on he doesn't seem to remember that he's done this but he sort of opens one of the bags pretty fully and lets a bunch of time out and they all go back in time to before the mall was built and fall to the ground and this is where they go back to 1941 and Johnny already knows he's already pretty sure he knows where they are but they have to establish this so they they head into town but before they head into town they have a conversation about what might happen if they try going back and they shift where they are into the future where something has been built and they might end up like with their molecules mixing up and then which leads to a great discussion about what fridge atoms are. Um, and there's just, and, and Kirsty's like, do you talk like this all the time? And I'm like, yes, they do. It's delightful. <laughs> anyway, so that he gets freaked out by the prospect of, you know, having his atoms mashed into a wall and runs off to try and find somewhere familiar. He, he heads off for home. He being wobbler. Yeah, him being Wobbler. And the rest of them head into town to try and figure out when they are and where they should stand if they want to go back home. Because mm-hmm. at this point, they don't think they can control it. They think, like, they're sort of stuck here for a certain amount of time and then they're just going to go back by themselves because that's what seemed to happen before. They leave Big Mac to guard the trolley and Yolas and Kirsty and Johnny go into a corner store to try and find a newspaper to find the date where a woman refers to Yolas as Sambo. I think the chapter ends there. It's just like a slap in the face. And it's kind of like... It does. Yeah. And it is it is, and it is meant to be kind of a what the fuck moment. Oh, yeah, that's right. It's 1941. People are not ashamed to be racist or don't realize that they are racist, perhaps, if you want to be charitable about it, which is kind of how Kirsty deals with it. Kirsty's reaction is also very interesting, I thought, because like she kind of dismisses it basically. She's like, oh, well, you know, it's just how she's raised and they don't have any malicious intent. And she basically just brushes off all of Yolis's things. But when she comes across the same treatment because she's a woman, she's like completely 
outraged and incensed and will not have a bar of it and does not see the parallels, even though there's the recurring joke of them saying, all saying the same things back to each other about like, oh, you know, there's no malicious intent or whatnot. And that's just, I think, always an interesting commentary on like, it depends on how close to home an issue is, how seriously you take it. Hmm. It's very white feminism. Yeah. In practice. But it's sucks, all, yeah. she's the only woman character other than like the crazy bag lady. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But she's also the only high status one of the kids. Like the others are all losers and then she's the one who's the high achiever. You kind of want it to be the high achiever one, but it's then again, it's unfortunate that she's the only girl. Yeah. I'm always hesitant. Like my pet peeve and especially in Australian literature now where it's like, we seem to love stories that are set in the recent past when racism was more acceptable or homophobia was more acceptable. Just mm-hmm. so somebody who is not actually, you know, who hasn't lived that experience can just put all these N words or F words or whatever onto the page. And we can all relish on how, oh, look how much we've changed. So it is my, it's my pet peeve in literature and they seem to be the books that we celebrate nowadays. But that all said, I think Pratchett did it with with a defter touch than most. I think having the kids actually come to terms with that in the moment and say, hey, look, this is all a bit messed up. I really, really enjoyed that. And I really enjoyed Kirsty being the one who was like, oh, you're overreacting. And then having her have to suffer that same sort of fate in a different way. I read more humor in them telling her, oh, no, it's just the time. It's how they were. And I was like, yeah just drag her a little bit but I've sort of I've hit my limit as a 31 year old of how many books featuring racism in the past do we need to know that racism is wrong like we always talk about oh reading fosters empathy but it's like well okay then why the hell don't we have empathy yet (laughs) (laughs) um I'm happy with it, but again, I'm not a person of colour. I am slightly off-white at best, so (laughs) I can see this being, you know, groundbreaking or whatever for the 90s when it was written. But like a lot of things with sort of Pratchett, you have to accept that it is sort of of the time and there are some moments where he'll say some things or, you know, reduce a larger character to, oh, here's 70,000 fat jokes about this person. And so there is that sort of discomfort looking at it from not only a 2020 lens, but also a lens where I am a published author now myself, where I'm like, oh my God, what are the 70,000 different ways somebody can be victimized by what I've written? And more often than not, that leads me to be like, oh, causing that pain to one person is not worth me thinking I'm being really clever on the page. Mm. And while I can't speak for people of color, I think Pratchett toes that line well, doesn't overdo it, doesn't make it into a learning opportunity or anything like that, or at least not for the characters who are perpetrating the racism. And he does sort of dismantle that, oh, they don't know any better line where it's like, yeah, but it's still bad. And I thought that was, that was a nice take on it that I'm where I'm I'm willing to forgive having to put Yolus through that and then in turn put the people of colour who read the book through that. Mm. And I think there is good value in Kirsty being like, oh, well, you know, it's just it's just what happens now and it's just don't don't be so sensitive about it and her getting chastised or mocked gently through it. There's, va- there's a value in that reaction of the other characters towards her. That's I think that. she blows up far more than Yolus does. 
Like oh, she yeah. is absolutely not. I am not taking this. Whereas Yolus is sort of this sort of like a. I don't want to say he accepts it and expects it, but he's definitely borne the brunt of that in the present, and that informs the way that he takes it in the past. And he still gets it from Kirsty. Like yep. you know, later in even after that's happened, he like reveals that he does Morris dancing because he's a big old nerd. I love him so much. <laughs> he's just the he's one of the best nerds. And then she actually says, oh, like, I wouldn't have thought that would be a thing that someone like you... And then she kind of realises what she's saying. And Mm. he has that moment where he gets to let her dangle, like, guiltily. It's like like when someone says something racist or sexist to you, they make a a joke and you go, I don't get it. Why is that funny? And then you just let them stew in their own shame as they realise the reason (laughs) it's funny is because it's racist or whatever. So that was kind of a bit of a delicious comeuppance. At the end, but it also showed that she's from 1996 and she still has a bunch of these messed up ideas. Yeah. Because I agree, like having those books set in the past where people can go, things are so much better now. It's like, yeah. No. Look, yes, but also that doesn't mean there's no work to do. There's heaps of work to do. Hmm. And and look, I say that we've got to acknowledge that, you know, we haven't had a lot of people of color guests on, on this podcast and it would be great to get their sort of take on some of this stuff. But I, I, I guess it's worth saying that I also don't want to ever invite someone on to be like, can you tell us what you think about racism in this book? Because you know about racism because you've had to deal with it. It's and like, that, is, that is the only opinion you are good for. Sort yeah, of thing where it's- like that would be gross as well. Yeah. But they look, they get themselves a newspaper. They confirm the date. It is the date that Johnny suspected. It's the date of the Blackberry Blitz. This is where sort of a couple of things go down. Uh, Big Mac, who's been left guarding the trolley, steals a car, crashes it. Gets arrested by the police mm-hmm. um, because he's very suspicious. He doesn't know certain things and he's wearing like a, you know, a 1996 radio with some headphones. Mm-hmm. And as we later find out, also has some swastikas on his gear, which is a bit like, Edgelordy. dude. Wobbler, meanwhile, has made it home or to where his home will be. Uh, met some locals, realized that he really is in the past. And there's that nice bit where he sort of has that that state and I, I don't know if you've ex- I've experienced this where like you're worried about something and then it turns out that that thing is happening and then you sort of go oh I don't have to worry about it anymore I've just got to deal with it hmm. and suddenly all of the anxiety is gone because now you're in a different state you're not in the is this going to happen will this happen is everything going to go wrong uh state you're in the things are going wrong I've got to deal with it state hmm. so he realizes that he's in the past he decides to go back to the others and on the way meets a kid who is trying to run back to London where he's been evacuated from, um, who asks him a bunch of questions and decides he's suspicious. So instead of running back to London, he follows Wobbler and starts telling him, you know, you're a spy. My, my, you know, our Ron's going to come and get you. He's a policeman and really annoying him, even though Wobbler tries to run away. Hmm. And then the others are like, what are we going to do about this? And they also find it a bit suspicious that they've ended up in this time that Johnny has recently been researching for school. And he's also like, yeah, I'm a bit worried about this. How is that the case? They talk about, we can't really change anything. I mean, what are we going to do? Tell people, hey, you're going to be bombed. They think we were spies or weirdos or something. And then he's like, well, I want to see the place that's going to get blown up, Paradise Street. And they go there. And then Kirsty in particular changes her tune a bit when she realizes there's kids playing on the site and that it's actual people who are going to get killed. It's not just history to them anymore. But they are just like, I don't know how we're going to do this. If you were in this situation, you went back in time and you knew like a thing was going to unfold, would you feel like you should change something, as in should in terms of the bigger picture of time paradoxes? 
or like what wins in terms of like the ethics of that moment or not changing time for you? I think it's the ethics of that moment. And especially when they don't understand how time travel works, they don't know if they are stuck there forever. So for all intents and purposes, that is there now. Mm. And they have to live in that now for however long it is. And those people are real and you'd want them to live the fullest, most positive life. It is truly a trolley problem. Because mm. they are literally... <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, I feel I feel the same. But I think also this is partly like whenever anyone says, where would you go if you could travel anywhere in time? I'm like, I'll go back and look at dinosaurs or I would go into the future. I'm like, I don't want to go back into human history because it's too full of awfulness and suffering. And then you are in this position. And I, But I think I would try and use what I knew to change things, particularly if I didn't know what the rules were or mm. if I didn't know there were rules. Because either if the rules were you can't change things, well, what have I lost by trying, you know? But if the rules are you can change things, well, then that's great. You can make a difference, make things better, save some lives. I mean, you, you can't know what the ongoing broader effects are going to be, but you never know that. Like Johnny says, you know, you're changing the future all the time. Yeah. One of them might make the Z bomb. Like, Yeah. <laughs> that was such a great line. And then, and then one of them's like, someone from the Blackberry Blitz made a bomb. <laughs> She's like, well, it's just an example I made up. It was very funny. Everyone's sort of in a slightly different situation. And Big Mac gets taken back to the police station where he's interrogated. This is where it comes out that, you know, he's wearing swastikas and they're very suspicious of him and decide he must be a German spy. Not least because he's wearing, you know, like a 1990s watch and has a, a tiny little radio, both of which say made in Japan on them, which is very suspicious. Even more suspicious in 1941 when no one's really thinking about Japan yet during the war. So that's Mistake. that's happening. Uh, yeah, yes, exactly. But the others eventually do meet up again with Big Mac and Wobbler because Big Mac escapes from the police station being shot at by army personnel and has to steal an old-fashioned bicycle. Is a great description of how it's got a hard leather seat and no suspension and he's wearing thin shorts. And so he's like, how do people do this? And he's trying to ride while standing up. But yeah, they all get back together. They're like, okay, well, let's get out of here. This is not safe. And they go somewhere where they know is still going to exist in the future, which is like the church hall. And they go inside. They get Johnny to try and take them back to the present, which he does. They only realize after they're gone that Wobbler has been left behind. But they have come back into a different leg of the trousers of time. When they go outside and look down the hill, they realize they've come back slightly before they left. Because they can see Johnny and Kirsty coming down the hill on the other side, being pursued by the black car. And Johnny and Kirsty like, steer into the mall. They go into the mall as well, and Johnny has a bit of a flash of insight over who would know about this situation, who would be coming to find us and talk to us. And he runs and opens the door of the car and insists that this person tell him who he is. And he says, I'll oh, just call me Sir John. But Johnny's already worked it out. For the others, it's not until they sit down in the restaurant inside, which they notice has changed a bit. It's not the same as it was before. And he reveals by repeating a joke that Wobbler screws up earlier in the book, which was a nice little touch, I thought, that he is Wobbler. Mm. Uh, he's a version of Wobbler who was left behind in the past, grew up, made millions of bucks by starting a burger Billions. chain before burger Billions. chains were a thing. Well, he made his first millions doing the burger thing, and then he started investing that money in every technology he knew was going to work out when people would say things like, hey, I think we could, I think I know how to make a video recorder. He's like, yes, I will give you as much money as you need to make that happen. I think that's going to be a success. So he makes a billion dollars and becomes an old man who is on his 
last legs. He's taking pills and he has a very Pratchetty way of saying it where he's like, yeah, I'm suffering from life, but I'm, I'm nearly cured. And you're like, that's a very Pratchett way to talk about death. And he explains that, look, I know you said you were going to go back and get me and that, yes, it's time travel, so you don't have to rush, but there's a version of time where you don't and there's a version of time where you do. And even if you do go back, you've got to do just the right things to make it work. And if you do go, please give this letter to my younger self. And he gives them a letter to give his younger self. And they decide they are going to go back and try and rescue Wobbler. And Kirsty insists that they get prepared this time, which basically means dressing up appropriately so that no one stares at them. And they all go off and get appropriate clothing, which is when (laughs) Big Mac comes back. And I love the fact that he's gone with Yolus to like a costume shop and Yolus has like found something vaguely appropriate, but it's still kind of highly inappropriate like it's it's period but it's like he's dressed up to be a what did that what do they say he's like like he's like a saxophonist yeah uh which is like what and he's wearing like a cape or something they're 14 so they should just be wearing like shorts and like a vest johnny's the only one who is appropriately dressed for his age everyone else is wearing adult clothes which is very weird that's because he's like raided his granddad's stuff isn't it which is a nice sort of... That that should have been the clue that... See, I didn't piece... Right, okay, cool. Now we're getting there. Yeah. There's a couple of little clues, yeah. But, but he does them well, because usually I'm just all over clues being like, well, that's too obvious, whereas this one I just kind of like, ah, oh, there's like pleasant foreshadowed surprises unfolded throughout, so I felt like it was done well. Yeah, I enjoyed that too. But yeah, Big Mac has <laughs> gone to the shop with Yolus and picked out a military uniform, and Yolus <laughs> is trying to tell him, but he won't listen... That it's a German military uniform mm. because it's the only one they've got. And he's like, but I thought they had swastikas and stuff. And he's like, that's just the SS. <laughs> like, you're dressed like a normal German soldier. So they tell him to take the jacket off and hopefully it just looks like a generic army uniform. <laughs> but of course, in 1941, everyone's got a keen eye <laughs> for what the enemy is wearing. So that's clearly not going to work. But yeah, they uh, they decide they're going to go back, uh, which they do. Um, and they come back. And I, I kind of like this touch too, is that... The scene where they leave Wobbler behind, they we kind of stay with Wobbler a little bit and he goes looking for the others and can't find them. And then he comes back in and he senses someone's there and he turns around and goes, what? And then when they go back, the first thing we hear is Wobbler saying, what? So it's like that moment is like five minutes later for him, but we skip like 20 pages in the book and suddenly they're back. And he's surprised because now they're all dressed differently. And he's like, what are you doing? He's a bit slow. He's obvious what they're doing. <laughs> Well, it's obvious to them. They've had a cold conversation about it. They don't tell him about future him, which is probably for the best. And, yeah, they have a whole conversation about trying to figure out what's changed. Because this is where they realise that it's not just that they left him behind. They changed something in the past, which meant Wobbler couldn't go back to the present because they'd changed history. So, he'd never been born, which is something the older Wobbler tells them. And so, they start questioning him about, what did you do? Like, did you meet anybody? Did you do anything? And they eventually figure out that the young kid that he met who was being really annoying and calling him a spy and following around, who was supposed to be running back to London, is his grandfather. The classic. And he makes it work. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice that like, a, lot of, a lot of time travel stories, they start talking about the fate of the whole world or the fate of the whole universe. Pratchett keeps this really nice and contained. It's not about that. It's about the fate of their one friend, and it's about the fate of people who live in their town during the war. I really like that focus, but it also means that it all makes a lot more sense that the people in the story are all locals who are significant because the whole story is about local significance. Hmm. But it's funny because like he's not local, he's an evacuee, but he ends up marrying, you know, it's just, yeah, it's interesting. 
Yeah, I did find his story was maybe a little unnecessarily complicated. Like, there's the whole thing where he's supposed to be running back to London where he's been evacuated from, but now he's been distracted by Wobbler. He's going to stay here and get blown up by the bomb. Whereas really, he'd go back to London, then he'd come back, and then he'd marry the daughter of the woman he'd been billeted with. And you're like, I guess it's not that complicated, but I did feel like there was a lot of detail in there. Where is the daughter? But what I don't get is, like, wouldn't the daughter then just have died? Yeah, like, where is she? Like, if he was billeted with her... Well, remember that not everybody dies in the bombing in original, the first place. Yeah. So the original history of the Blackberry Blitz is that the sirens go off a bit late, so not everybody gets into shelter in time and a yeah. bunch of people die, yeah. but not everybody in the town. I guess more than 19 yeah. people would live on a street, even a small street. Yeah. And as we find out when the bombs eventually land, like, oh, it's not just the people in the street. Like, it causes quite widespread devastation because there's shrapnel and broken glass and, you know, yeah. stuff flying everywhere um, that I thought was really, uh, like, when we get to that bit in the book, I'm like, yeah, like, up until now, it's been this sort of, like, looming disaster, but we haven't really understood what it's like. And even at that point, just before the bombs land, Big Mac is like, this is going to be cool. I'm going to get to see some bombs go off. And Wobbler's like, I don't know if it is going to be cool. And then it's really not cool. It's like horrifying and frightening. And uh, they both have this sort of shared moment where they're just glad to be alive, which is kind of beautiful. And make a joke about burgers, as is the way. Yeah. Yeah, that is the way. But the shrapnel thing was true. Like, my dad told me about how um, after the all clear would sound and the next day all the kids would go out and collect bits of shrapnel and he had a drawer full of it. And he's kind of sad that he didn't keep it. It's just strange and interesting the way people adapt I mean, I guess if you're going to be in a situation like that, the best age to be would be a small child because you don't fully understand the magnitude of it. And it is a bit like exciting and interesting. The fear isn't as big for most children. There'll be some that understand, but yeah. Well, if you're kept safe, then the fear is kind of manageable. It's kind of like the difference between going on a, a roller coaster and actually being in a car crash. And if every time the sirens go off, you go in a bunker and there's these bangs from outside, but then you come back out and... You know, your town's not too horribly bombed, but there's some interesting bits of the town that have been blown up and nobody died. You could start to see it as a bit of a fun adventure if you were young enough to not understand the terror of that. But also, like, if you're young enough that 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 is just what your reality is like, you don't have a normal to compare it to. That's just what things are like. And if you don't have a full concept of death or the permanence of death either, the consequence of what's happening also doesn't ring true. So it is just kind of like, this is what life is like and this is kind of fun and interesting and not all children are the same obviously and all of them develop at different rates but yeah you know it's just yeah. i've grown up hearing my dad's world war ii stories and it's just been i don't know I, it's something i've thought about a lot and in this book it was interesting to see how much of that actually lined up with what he was saying yeah my great-grandfather was too old for the war and then my grandfather was too young Huh. So we don't have any family war stories because everybody was just away from it and not serving. So it's it's always been something that's been at a bit of a distance for me. Right, well, my dad grew up in England, like, was born in England and stuff, so like this lines up with his experience. And his dad um, didn't fight, but he was sent off to Egypt to work on ships. So that's just, yeah. Uh, but this is where they start really trying to figure out what can they do to put things back on track. But also what can they do to change things? First of all, they're going to try and figure out why didn't the sirens go off in time, which is when Kirsty talks to a policeman about how the sirens work uh, and sort of pretends to be like a, well, I think the word is like she tries to simper or at least what she thinks simpering is. Um, 
and that she's condescended to by the policeman and she really finds that hard to deal with, but she grits her teeth and bears it. And they, they realise that it's not there's no automated radar system or anything like that. There's some guys up on the hill who are listening and watching out for planes and if they see them coming, they phone the police department and they pull the lever that sets off the siren. But something goes wrong with that, obviously, because it, it doesn't happen. So Johnny and Yolis and Kirsty go up the hill to see what's going on. While meanwhile, Wobbler, who does not want to leave the trolley because they can't take it with them, uh, but he doesn't want to leave it behind because he's scared of getting left behind in the past again. He stays behind with Big Mac, who's also like, I'm not going to go out to public like I'm dressed as a German soldier and they already think I'm a spy. Uh, so those two stay behind while the others go up to the hill and they have a fight. Like, I thought this was quite good. Like, Big Mac lets on that they know something about Wobbler's future without saying what it is. And Wobbler starts fighting him to tell him what it is. And it, which is where, like, there's not many fat jokes. Like, this is a nice change for Pratchett to write about one of the characters he's established as fat. I mean, apart from the fact that his nickname is Wobbler, and there's a few references to how when he's older, or even now, you know, he's not just fat, he's big and fat, so people kind of leave him alone. But it, it, this is like the one the one fat joke, really, which is where he says he can't fight, but he mastered the art of weight. <laughs> he sort of, like, gets on top of Big Mac and pins him down. So there's still there's still a couple in there, but it's not incessant the way it is in some of the other books which is a pleasing change but is that because he's a guy uh, well yes i think that's true but it seems to me there's a lot more fat jokes in only you can save mankind and maybe even johnny and the dead or that's mostly yeah. only you can save mankind there were a lot of um quite troublesome jokes in the first two which have toned down a lot i think in this one which is good. Yeah. There is a lot of running up hills, isn't it? It's like like a Kate Bush song, this whole yeah. whole book. <laughs> I was just thinking that. Sorry, I'm it. too young to get that reference. We're the same <laughs> age. <laughs> yeah, but they do they do run up the hill. And it actually looks a bit like a Kate Bush film clip later on when they run back down the hill the way it's described too, which I so that's quite an apt description. Uh but yeah, they go up to the hill, they find that the spotters for the planes are in an old disused windmill. They bang on the door just as the storm comes in. Johnny, by this time, though, we haven't talked about this. He's been having these sort of visions, like he's starting to see through time. He's like he's got the prize in Highlander. He can see through time and he gets these flashes of what's about to happen or or visions of the bombing. And that comes to a head in this scene because they're kind of reluctant to let them in to the windmill because it's like this is a military outpost. Like you can't just have kids in here. You can't let kids into the military windmill. Yeah, they're doing an important job. They don't want to be interrupted, I guess. But it's raining and Johnny doesn't look well. It's basically like an episode of Dad's Army. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is Dad's Army. You know, these are people who are presumably they are part of the Home Guard. I mean, they're not off fighting in France. Mm. So, yeah, they're looking after things at home. But they get in there. They try to persuade them that they've got to check the telephone, like that something is going to be wrong with it. And they're like, it works fine. We tested it just a little while ago. And then just as they're about to pick it up and test it, lightning strikes and it explodes which i thought was maybe a bit over the top but kind of a cool visual of a bakelite phone exploding into bits and they realize that the phone's out so if there is a bombing run they can't tell anyone or if they are going to tell anyone they have to get on the motorbike but then the motorbike doesn't start johnny starts predicting all these things and they get suspicious but then he starts predicting the cards that they turn out of a pack of cards and they get a bit freaked out enough to believe him and they start hearing the planes coming and they run back down the hill to try and get to the town and warn them in time. And they don't make it. The planes drop their bombs, they blow up Paradise Street and they kill a bunch of people. And then Johnny has this sort of flash of inspiration. He grabs everybody's hands and runs through time 
accelerating them down the hill so that when they do get to the town, it's actually about seven minutes earlier and they've got just enough time to set off the alarms, which doesn't work. There's a whole thing. I love the scene, though, when they get to the police station and they're talking to the army captain who believes them because they're like, we're from the future. Like, they they just run out of ways to subtly say, you've got to do something because when the actual siren doesn't work, they're like, you still got to do something. Come on. We're from the future. Look, here's this newspaper from the future. And the captain's like, I've seen enough strange things today. I'm not going to totally discount this. And he calls up the newspaper to check that this is an accurate page. And then he's like, I believe it. Get out the other siren. Like, the worst that can happen is I look like a dick. The best that could happen is we save some people. I don't know why he didn't think that earlier, though, because that's entirely the rational thing. Like, oh, what's the worst that happens? People go into their shelters and you look like a bit of a fool for, like, jumping the gun. Like, I don't think you're going to get fired or, like, anything. Everyone be like, oh, no, that guy's just a bit too cautious. I don't really see what they had to lose by by doing the thing, especially since they had some of the guys from the actual guard come with them. It's not just a ragtag group of kids saying some nonsense. Like, I don't know why they didn't just do it straight away. Well, yes, but I think also there was quite a taboo against pulling the sirens when you didn't have a good reason. Mm. Because the last thing they wanted was for people to get so used to it that they didn't react. So I think there is that as a motivation to not just do it because some kids tell you to. Okay. The town is kind of like the fly in amber in that scene where it's just stuck in time as they get there through the seven minutes. But there's so many things standing in their way that are telling them this street is supposed to get blown up. Like all the contingency plan upon contingency plan falls through. It's like fate is saying that time should stay this way. Like, but no one sort mm. of says, oh, maybe we shouldn't. Like, I'm worried I'm going to come across as a complete psychopath, but I feel like in another science fiction story, maybe not one for children, there'd be a character in there being like, these seem to be signs that the timeline is supposed to stay this way. The fact that every time we change something, something else jumps in the way. It seems like time is resisting change for a reason. But yeah, I don't mm. know. That's what I just found that interesting because they did have a lot of good contingency plans. Not as many as they should have. Like, I don't feel like a motorcycle is a good contingency plan for your phone not working. Well, I mean, look, you know, they're in a little town where they don't expect to get bombed. And as Johnny explains, it's a mistake. Like, they're they're supposed to be bombing a railway depot quite a ways away, but they get lost in a storm. They see the railway station at Blackbury and think it's the one, and they just bomb it and fly home. I just think, like, if you're going to do something, you should do it properly. So, like, if you're going to have a system in place, even if you don't expect to be bombed, either, like, don't have a system or have a really good system, don't have this sort of half-assed system. Well, yeah, I guess they felt like having a phone and a motorbike was enough, but they were wrong. Yes, because it's half-assed. Are you saying that people don't make half-assed decisions in positions of power in 2020 and that we wouldn't (laughs) expect that in a fictional story about time travel with bags of time in a trolley? I'm just saying I would have done it better if I was in charge of Dad's army there. I would not have been like, oh, yeah, here's our phone and here's our motorcycle that we know for a fact regularly malfunctions because Johnny points out that the carburetor is like a problem, not just this one time. This is the problem, though. In the 40s, they weren't listening to women. And so you have men who didn't have these thoughts, right, patronizing you while you were mentioning, hey, maybe a motorbike. Oh, terror. I'm not even going to acknowledge that. <laughs> you know, when you mentioned maybe the motorbike isn't the best thing. I'd have just set up my own secret go. thing where I was monitoring it with like a group of other women then and just done a better job. But then who's making the cakes and the scones? <laughs> the children. 
So you're just passing on the labor to somebody else. You're not actually fixing the systemic problems. Yeah. There we go. Actually worsening it. Good. Good. Disenfranchising more people. Good. And starting it young. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, no. This is is taking a turn. Let's bring this home. Let's go. (laughs) The point is the the sirens go off and they're not quite sure if it worked. But then, Mm. of course, it worked. And everyone went into their tiny little shelters and survived the Well, it works. They have to use, like, the backup hand-cranked siren that the police have uh because i like this detail because you're right like it does seem like this is fated to happen and as johnny sort of figures out the bombs have to fall like he can't change that fact the only thing he can change is maybe he can save some people and stop them from dying when the bombs fall so they get this secondary siren going and it works and then i like that the captain then just accepts this as meaning they are from the future they do know stuff he's like you're gonna have to come with me we're gonna have to put you in a nice manor house we'll feed you well and lots of very smart people will come and ask you questions. And Kirsty's like, well, I don't know. And as he sort of consoles her by patting her, she just judo flips him uh, so they can make their escape, which I thought was great. And meanwhile, Wobbler and Big Mac, who are hanging out by the church, getting excited by the prospect of the bombs, as they're about to fall, they realise that the kid, Wobbler's granddad, who had followed them, was standing somewhere very not safe, and they both sort of instinctively run and grab him and then run back around the back of the church and are just able to get back in time to not be shredded by broken glass and shrapnel. But they do get coated in vinegar and pickles and tomato sauce from the exploding pickle factory, which leads to Big Mac's great, do you want fries with that joke? Which is, <laughs> which is like, I know that they, they over-egg it and, and they talk about, you know, Pratchett talks about in the text that it's the funniest thing that anyone's ever said because they've just nearly died, but also it is pretty funny. Yeah, it, it's a good joke. I thought the plan was going to be that they try and, like, lure everyone into the church. Like, that's when they first said that the church survived. My original thought was they're going to just pull some church service or something to get everyone from the street into there so that when the bombs dropped, they wouldn't be in their houses. But, yeah, I mean, the church still came back into it. Yeah. But that's how I thought they were going to solve it. I mean, who knows? Maybe that was even intentional misdirection on Terry's part. But look, that that's the climax of the book. The bomb's falling, and from here on, it's kind of all wrap-up. Big Mac and Wobbler help dig people out of their, you know, bomb shelters. They get given some tea in the end. They marvel at the fact that that's all they get given. Like, there's no counselling. It's just tea. They're like, oh, yeah, come on, a cup of tea, a bex, and a nice lie down. That's That was still standard up until the 1960s. <laughs> no one really was into understanding trauma at the time. So that was that was pretty full on, and then they they managed to go back to their own time. Um, although I do, I really love the bit where Wobbler tries to tell his own granddad, who it's revealed died at forty in a motorcycle accident, uh, that he shouldn't ride motorcycles, and his granddad's like, nah. And Wobbler's like, oh, what an idiot! Like I would have totally listened to advice from the future. And then after <laughs> they get back to the present and they give him his future selves letter, which is just full of like very practical, boring advice, like avoid fatty foods and invest your money in this sort of thing. He's like, oh, this is boring. Why would I read this? <laughs> just like, you idiot. Human nature. Yeah, it was great. Hmm. Um, but yeah, they get back. They get back in time. Everyone they, get, forgets. they get back home. Except for Johnny. Everyone starts to forget. Yeah, because history's changed. And history has changed a little bit, but it's sort of that version where History's stayed basically on the same course, and it's just little things that have changed. Like, this specific shop is now this other specific shop, and these street names have changed, but basically everything else is the same. Yeah, and then we have the nice reveal about how Johnny's grandfather was one of the people that they dealt with dealing with the siren. 
he's the guy. He's Tom who ran down the hill with them. It's interesting though that I mean, we guess I guess we don't see enough of his character, but like nothing profoundly has changed about his grandfather's life because his grandfather's life is just watching TV and sort of ignoring Johnny. But having this big, what would have been a big heroic moment for him, like would have in a small town that would have been quite a thing doesn't seem to have impacted him in a big way whereas in back to the future he'd be like a multi best-selling science fiction novelist and playing golf with his wife like you know <laughs> yeah but he's just living the same life still watching cobras not really that interested in his grandson the olympics came to come look at him but you know whatever oh yeah because he ran down the hill in record time but really only because time Johnny shifted them through time, yeah. But he is willing to talk about it now, whereas in the original timeline, Johnny mentions that he never wants to talk about the war. That's probably because he felt like he was responsible for killing 19 people, yeah. Yeah, which is full on. Yeah. And then uh, the last thing that happens in the book is Mrs. Tachyon has escaped from the hospital and gone back in time to 1941 to get Guilty, the cat who's been left behind, and then heads back in time to 1903 to spend a sixpence that she's been given uh, because she gets much better value for it back then. (laughs) Uh, which I thought was a nice touch. And that's a book. Yeah. How do we feel about it when we get to the end? It's a satisfying conclusion without being too saccharine. Yeah. It gives the trilogy a sense of unity and it gives us sort of one final adventure with all the friends, but it doesn't feel like it's setting up a one final special adventure with the friends kind of thing, if that makes sense. Do we know if Pratchett expected this or anticipated this to be a trilogy or did he have other books planned after the third one that he just never got around to writing or was it just a, was it I'm just going to write one at a time and see how many I write sort of thing or was this like a, this is going to be the ending and it's intentional? Do we know the behind the scenes stuff? I don't know for sure. My impression is that the second two I think he planned together because there's otherwise not a great reason for Mrs. Tachyon to be in Johnny and the Dead. Like, she's a very incidental character. But I think he put her in that book so that she would already be kind of semi-established by the time we get to this book. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. As far as I know, there were no future Johnny books planned. There's been stories about books that he did have plans to write and there was at least like two or three other Discworld books. There was a sequel to Dodger. But I've never heard about him planning to write any more Johnny books. So I think mm. I think this was kind of it. But I, I kind of like that it, as you say, it's a really satisfying conclusion, but it doesn't feel like it's been written to be like the end of a trilogy. Mm. Like you could write another Johnny book after this and it'd be fine. Yeah, I, to me what I thought was going to happen with this book before I read it, um, after reading the second one, because of the, what are they called? The Blackberry Friends, where people from the street would all go together to war. The Pals. Pals. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I thought that was what this time travel book was going to be. Like, they actually ended up getting sent to war, is what I thought was going to happen. And either, like, it was going to be like the Pals or they were the Pals. But yeah, I think this is better than that. And it's a really short space of time. Like, the action in the book all takes place. I mean, it's a time travel book, so of course there's a bit of timey wimey stuff going on, but it basically all happens in the space of one or two days. I quite like that it's like a concentrated bit of time and a concentrated place. Hmm. What sort of person do you think Johnny's going to grow up to be? Mrs. Tachyon. <laughs> Mr. Tachyon. No, I don't know. I think he's going to sort of figure out where he sits. I think I think he's coming to terms with the fact that the world will look at him differently. I don't see him as a huge time traveler per se, but I still think he's just going to he's just going to be that person who always ends up finding himself in adventures. Like I don't think that's going to stop. Hmm. hmm. Yeah, and I like that because there's so often that idea that, you know, when the kids who have these adventures in various stories grow up, 
that they they lose any connection to the fantasy life that they had and you know either explicitly or implicitly either because the book is trying to get you to think about this as not really happening or because they say that there's something magical about childhood whereas you don't you don't get that here Mm. so yeah i like the idea that still weird things happen to johnny when he gets older (laughs) that would make me very happy yeah, I just can't get a read on what he'd be like. Like the others, I can kind of imagine their trajectory, but he's such an interesting, different kind of character. I just can't see like him at 30, him at 50, like what his life or career or like travels, like if he's going to stay where he is. Like I, I, I agree that I think he's going to have a connection to this sort of fantasy surreal side of life, but I just can't get a hold on how his life would play out even in a, wild guess Mm. whereas i think you can kind of see possible directions for the others Mm. absolutely much much more clearly i think that's the strength of this book that he isn't some traditional character that you can just sort of compare to others like i don't know so i think that's i think that's an accomplishment See, this is why we needed a really naff epilogue that was set several years later where they were all at a train station and they were all partnered up and they all had kids, you know, and little little Tacky and Junior Mm. is there with, you know, everyone having... Oh, terrible. And they all have really naff names. That's that's what I want from my fiction. I don't don't know if Pratchett ever specifically commented on on the ending of Deathly Hallows, but he certainly did not like J.K. Rowling's books. He's <laughs> he's on record. I can imagine, like, Johnny one day, like, maybe later in life, travelling to some other part of time where things are quieter, living out his life in the past, perhaps. Oh, yeah. Not in a wobbler way, just in a, oh, yeah, I've lived here enough, um, everyone else has moved on with their lives, and maybe I just want some peace and quiet in this time that I choose and then he has control over the situation, which is something that he lacks in his current life. Hmm. We should move on. We've got some questions, but before we get to them, are there any quotes or, or favourite bits that we haven't really talked about? I loved the line, she's totally around the bend, but perhaps she gets a better view from there. I just <laughs> yeah. loved the way, like, I was, as I was ready, I'm like, oh, come on, let's, let's ease up on this mental health stuff. And then by the end, I'm like, oh, okay. It's more about perspective than that, which I thought was really lovely. Yeah, just little bits of wordplay like that. You know, that's I think that's what I miss in a sort of post-Pratchett world where, you know, we've got less of that now. Mm, particularly in, in kids' books, because I, mm-hmm. I think some people would assume kids wouldn't get things like that. But yeah. I think you're better off putting them in because some kids will. And that's what I loved about it was that I've stayed away from his sort of younger stuff. The only younger stuff that he'd written that I'd read are the Tiffany Aching books. And they, there's no hand-holding in that at all. Like if you are not on board and you don't know what the hell is going on when he references something from a Discworld book 20 books ago, he does not care, right? And it's yeah. the same sort of... It's the same attitude here where it's not what sort of middle grade, this is, this is, I'd say this is upper middle grade, which is what it was pitched at when I was in year six, upper middle grade, lower YA, but more upper middle grade. And, you know, especially nowadays, it's, I don't know if it's the Harry Potterfication of the genre or the reading group, but it's very much plinkety plonkett and the chamber of whimsy sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. But there's not, that's not the way that he writes this. This just seems like, okay. I'm Terry Pratchett, I'm telling a story about a 13-year-old or a 14-year-old. 
And that's where it becomes age appropriate or inappropriate. It's not the way he uses language or the way he tells a story. I think to the detriment of the first book in the series, I think he was still, he was like, oh, you know, kids love video games. And so like, I think that that was a big influence on that book. But I think he got better at telling more human stories with these characters uh, instead of sort of chasing that. I mean, in, in his defense, he also loved video games. So <laughs> that was probably a good excuse for him. Couldn't really put video games into the Discworld. Although he managed it a few times, like the pretty straight up Lemmings reference in uh, Interesting Times, I think it was, and the Tomb Raider reference in, in Carpe Jugulum. Like, there's, there, it's in there. It's in there. Mm. But I take your point, for sure. I liked that this town that tells a whole bunch of coming-of-age stories is paired with a French town basically called Aches and Pains. Right, I'd forgotten that right at the start. You're a throwaway line about that. I I also really enjoyed that Australia was quite present in this. Like, it's implied that Wobbler owns Tasmania because he's got that much money. And they talk about everyone having a cousin in Australia and everyone's still watching Cobras, which is Neighbours. Oh, and there's that bit where they're reading the old pickle jar that is out of Mrs. Tachyon's trolley and it's got all the awards and one of them's like the Bonza Feed Award. (laughs) 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 That was like, that is a thing that probably exists. And I had too many quotes that I liked, but I think I'm just going to read this one. Big Mac stared at the car. He'd seen the ones like it on television, normally in those costume dramas where one car and two women with a selection of different hats keep going up and down the same street to try and fool people that this isn't really the present day. And I love that because I watch so many period dramas and it's so true. And if you watch Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries, which is a wonderful television series that they keep taking off every streaming service, so I can't watch it and I don't know why... They managed to capture the bits of Melbourne that are like authentically 1920s and 1930s. And a friend who's an actor pointed out to me that whenever he's watching it, he can't stop thinking about how rigidly framed it is. Like the car, the camera's like frozen and like won't move because it doesn't want to get a modern Stobie pole into it. So like it's just, <laughs> yeah. Look, there's so many good bits. I can't read them all. I really love the long exchange between the gang at the start. And there's the recurring thing where they talk about dinosaurs several times during the book. I love dinosaurs, so I was into that. But there's a great line in that bit where they're like, no one's proved the dinosaurs did die out. And then one of them says, oh, yeah, right, sure, they're still around, are they? I mean, maybe they come only at night or are camouflaged or something. A brick-finished Stegosaurus, a bright red number nine Brontosaurus. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, that is uh, such uh, kids' nonsense that I loved. Uh, Mm. But also that kind of section ends with Johnny saying, no one knows what happened to the dinosaurs, but we know what happened to Paradise Street. And uh, I bet if you ask the people there if time travel was a good idea, they'd say yes. That's mm. nice. I really like that. And and just a lot of the stuff where they're talking about time travel, particularly when Yolus gets involved and he starts talking about his Star Trek nerdery and the latest sequence where it's revealed that Kirsty also has a bunch of Star Trek videos at home and she's really embarrassed and doesn't want anyone to tell them. And Yolus is clearly loving this fact. I dug that as well. Mm. But there's just so many nice little bits. It's a really fun book. It's, like I wrote down so many like quote num- like page numbers and stuff, but like if I read them all, we'd just I'd just be reading you the book, really. And I mean, you I mean read the book we have yourself. this problem every month, don't we? Mm. Really. Uh, but let's get to the questions from our listeners. We may have already answered a couple of them, but what's what's the first one, Liz? So the first one's from Sven via Discord. What was your favorite Johnny book of the three, and why? Subject matter or other reasons? Well, I think we kind of covered this. This one's your favorite, isn't it, Will? Yeah, this is definitely my favorite. The final two are a definite step up in quality. I think the whole series was Pratchett getting the balance right between 
Johnny's sort of life and then you've got the life of the people he's trying to help in their situation. And in the first book, it's not 50-50, but it's very close and it's like there wasn't enough in the aliens to really keep us invested in those parts. He stripped back that in the second book where you had Johnny and you only went to the, the spirits sometimes and it never really sapped any of the momentum out of the story. But I think with this third book, because what he was fixing was somewhere that he was and it was his problem, it gave the text sort of, it felt more whole. It didn't feel as disjointed as the others where we were sort of waiting for the points to converge. We were there with Johnny, you know, for the most part or one of Johnny's friends. And so for me, I think, yeah, that's definitely the better one of the three. It's my favorite. I agree with Will that this is like the third one, Johnny and the Bomb, is the best structured, best written, and the best book of the series. However, my personal favorite is Johnny and the Dead because of the themes and the fact that it's mostly set in a graveyard. It does feel like it was written specifically with my personal interests in mind. So even though I don't think it's as well written or structured and that the third one is a lot better. Second one's my favorite purely because of the weird setting and like it just, yeah, it's, it's mine. It belongs to me and no one else can like it. I find it really hard to choose because the first one's got the whole video game angle and I really am nostalgic. I talked about this when we talked about that book, but I was basically Johnny's age at the time that the books are set. And so that book in particular, the first one, really felt quite similar to my own experience of life at that stage in various different ways. But I think the third one, like Johnny and the Bomb, uh, time travel is just my jam. And Pratchett is good at time travel. And I just love that he has successfully mashed all these different versions of how it works together. And it is logically internally consistent, yet still feels distinct from a lot of other time travel stories. So I think for those reasons, it's probably my favorite. But I have a real soft spot for Only You Can Save Mankind as well. And they're all good. That feeds very nicely into the next question, which is from Bell. Uh, on the topic of favorites, what is your favorite method of time travel? Not to invoke she who must not be named, but I really enjoy the neatness of the Prisoner of Azkaban sort of time travel where it's one tight loop. I love that when they cram like seven or eight times going back to that same loop and just sort of layer them on top of each other. I like that the most. I liked this sort of trouser theory and I was happy to sort of go along with it and really enjoy it because that actually gave our characters agency because as someone who's tried to write one of the Azkaban sort of loops, Mm -hmm. it's very difficult to make the story feel like there's an actual point to following these characters because if it's a loop and they can't change anything that hasn't already been changed, they can only just cause what's already happened, the story loses a lot of momentum and there's no real it doesn't feel like there's a point to it so it just feels like you're just checking things off a checklist so i'm sure what pratchett does in this one was a lot more fun to write you didn't try to write a loop like you you did it successfully it's it's very good because you would have had to come up with the decision how to do time travel as well like so i think that's a good question for you because did you write it in your favorite way or did you write it in the way that you think would be most effective for the book Oh, no, I wrote it in my, I knew straight away I was going to do a single, like, loop. Like, that's my, if I had to, like, you know, me being an astrophysicist or whatever the kind of science is that you look at this stuff, I'm sure that's the wrong one. If time travel exists, I'm, I'm more inclined to believe single loop theory. Hmm. 
that we're all just like one that's but I have no expertise in the matter. I'm on the same page as you there. Like I think that is what it would be if it was real. And I also think it's quite a challenge to write. So I enjoy setting myself that challenge. And usually, oddly enough, on Night Terrace, the time travel series that I work on, I end up writing the most timey-wimey episodes. But also everybody agreed that the character I play is also the one who hates time travel and doesn't understand how it works. But I agree. I I really like that where, you know, you go back in time and you don't know how it's going to work out, but it all fits together neatly like a puzzle by the end. And I find that immensely satisfying. But truly, I enjoy all forms of time travel. Like I say, I used to be quite uptight about it, but now I'm like, do what you want. I also just like the kind of free time travel that happens in Doctor Who, where it's not really about time travel. Most of the time, the time travel is just an excuse to be able to go anywhere and anywhere. That appeals to me as well. So I um, read this question a bit differently to the two of you because I wasn't like, what's my favorite time travel to read or in terms of neatness or how I like it working in terms of logic. I thought about it, like my first response to this question was, how if I were a time traveler, would I want time travel to work for me? And Mm. I would want it to not involve a thing. Like I would want to be able to do it with my mind or be able to like construct a portal or something by myself because if it's attached to a thing inevitably that thing gets lost or damaged and you get stuck yeah. somewhere and that's the problem becomes the sliders yeah so like i want to have control over when the time travel happens or like not have to have it tethered to something that can get broken or that needs to have uranium powering it or whatnot and yeah. i both would and would not want it to be an alternate reality like the branching time travel ones because while that is good for most of you, there's always going to be a, one or several timelines where a version of you is suffering and that version of you is you. So you're experiencing that just as much as you're not experiencing it. So I'd want a single time thread because then you have complete investment in it working out. You don't just hang another version of yourself or your friends out to dry so that things work out for you in this one. But I mean, look, I got bad news for you, Liz. I mean, the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics means that that's happening all the time, whether we time travel or not. This is not about what is or is not happening. It's what I want to happen. This is like fantasy football, but for time travel. I don't know what fantasy football is. But yeah. (laughs) I I just like to believe that I am living my worst possible life. And every every other William is blessed and a bestseller. (laughs) I would read that book, like, Living Your Worst Possible Life, like the self-help book of, like, being the one trapped in the, the shitty be timeline your, to help everyone your, else out. Be your worst you. Yeah. Like, you are just the... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, so our last question is from Shut Up Banks by Discord. If you could go back in time and warn your younger self about something, what would it be and would they listen? My advice to myself has something to do with my username and I probably wouldn't take it. <laughs> it's a lot to think about. I can answer it very Look- easily, but... Yeah. yeah, go on. Um, I absolutely would not warn my younger self about anything, though if I did, they would listen, and that is why I wouldn't do it. Because mm. I think that everything has happened in my life for a reason, the good things and the bad. So I'd be too afraid of things shifting to risk it. See, that's the thing. Everything I've learned, either creatively, professionally, or just on a human being level, I've learned that not because somebody told me something, but because I made a catastrophic error that I had to face the consequences for. So if you remove that element of personal growth, then you just don't grow. So I would, look, I would probably tell myself about certain investments to make and other investments not to make. But um, 
and yeah, just what's the what's the point of having we all get one life and it is one length like why why have spoilers that changes the whole point hmm yeah i get where you're coming from i know that for me i have certain things that i i very deeply regret in my life and i think and at least one of those occasions you know if anyone had talked to me about what i was doing and why it was wrong i hopefully would have listened and it would have made my life and several other people's lives much better and I think if I had the chance, I would. I would go back and talk to myself. And being a nerd who's read a lot of time travel, I would listen to my future self. See, <laughs> um, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't go back. At, talking to me would be the most boring thing. I would rather go back. You know, I want to talk to my grandfather when he was younger. Oh, that'd be I much would, better. No, you know yeah. what? I want to go back in time. I want to talk to my dad and be like, "Hey, be less like you in the future. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is who oh, shit, you yeah. become. Like that's." Or even just dropping into my parents' lives when they were the same age as me and just, like, encountering them as a human being, like, that I'm not related to, if that makes sense. And actually, like, getting Mm. that, having that experience, that would be worth more to me than, you know, doing, teaching myself a lesson or telling myself to back this horse in whatever race. Yeah. Sorry to climb, like all up my own ego but i actually wrote a short story about someone who has the ability to travel back and visit specific days of their relatives lives as a as a onlooker like as a it's called the voyeur and it drives them crazy but yeah anyway that's that's my whole thing i'm just but i'm just really pleased that without to. without really planning it this way we, we've done this episode of three people who've written time travel talking about a book about time travel <laughs> <laughs> now I'm going to ask a question that hasn't been asked, but I think, you know, it's, it's a good one. What's your favorite text that has employed time travel? It can be a film. It can be a book. It can be this book. It can be something you've written. <laughs> what is your favorite text that has employed time travel? Can I have two answers? Sure. Okay, so I'm going to say she who cannot be named because I, I love Prisoner of Azkaban. That is very cleverly yeah. written. Like, it is the best of the series by a long way, and I love it by because far. of the time travel, and it is just yeah. meticulously planned. And when you read it the first time, so many things are shocks that, yeah, it's just it's done so well, and I hate that it's her that wrote it, but, like, it's very good. The yeah. other one, the Back to the Future duology. Like, I love the third film, but I feel like the first two work so well together like the the really cool thing of the second one coming back to the first one is something i hadn't seen before and i think cannot be repeated so those two for different reasons see i haven't actually seen the first two because i grew up in the golden age of channel 10 only showing the third film every second Mm. friday so i've never seen the third film in one sitting but i've seen the third film Mm. (laughs) but i've never seen the others um you should there uh, have you any of you seen About Time? Is that the Richard Curtis one? With Rachel McAdams? Yes, Rachel McAdams and the guy who was totally shafted in that, the new Star Wars trilogy that I've forgotten the name of. John, John Boyega? Boyega? No, no, no. <laughs> okay. One of the several actors who were shafted in the Star Wars Oscar trilogy. Isaacs. Uh, no. <laughs> the one who, who played, like, the mini fascist. But um Oh, oh Don Gleason. Yes, yes. So I think I think that's him. So I think he's the yeah, he's the um he's the love interest. His his whole mechanic is 
his father is a time traveler and he is a time traveler and it's about them sort of coming to terms with being genetic time travelers and Hmm. But the thing is, if you go back and then come, there there are consequences that you have to sort of contend with, and it does sort of drive him, sort of to do certain things, and he has to come to terms with that. And it's, I think it's a really beautiful love story if you do like time travel. And I remember watching it. I watched it at uni, like second year or third year of uni, when it was released, and it was just really sweet, really beautiful storytelling that hmm. I really, really recommend. And it is sl- criminally slept on. Wow. I've written it down on my diagram. Yeah, I, I, I slept on that one. I did not see it. Um, I have so many, it's hard to pick a favourite. Um, but, well, that's a lie, though, because um, aside from Doctor Who, uh, it's Bill and Ted. The first Bill and Ted film for a long time was the only logically consistent time travel movie in existence because they don't cause any paradoxes. And in the second one, the only thing they do is break their own arbitrary rule. And they get away with it. I'm desperate to see the third one because I've been waiting for it for like 20 years. And I can't see it because it's been in cinemas in Australia when we couldn't go to the cinema in Melbourne. So it's broke my heart and I'm waiting for an opportunity to see it. I really want to see it. I also want to quickly mention The Time Traveler's Wife because I remember really enjoying that when I read it the first time. And it also has the interesting detail that was strangely honest, I thought, especially for a book written by a woman about a man where like because he can time travel and he meets himself at different points. Like, there isn't the paradox of if you meet yourself, like, it's just, like, a normal thing where he, like, comes across himself in his own life. And he literally does that, too, because he um, admits to boning himself as a teenager. So Fair enough. I actually did enjoy the book, but then after I read it- The movie sucks. I started to think too much about it, and I became real sus on it. But I think- I think that- It gets worse the further away you get from yeah, it. Yeah. But I did enjoy it when I first read it. I cried. I'll freely admit I cried in that book. And then, yeah. and then I thought about what happened in the book, and I thought- Okay, I cried, but also it's super creepy. Um, yeah, it's predatory. It's, it, just, it gets worse and worse the further you get away from it. Uh, and on that note, we should probably wrap things up. Will, thank you so much for coming back a second time after we made you read the worst book you've ever read, apparently, last time. Look, it's uh, it's. I only return for the company and because I am a diehard Terry Pratchett fan. So, you know, those two things. If it weren't for those two things, then, you know, I wouldn't come okay. back. Well, I think we'll have to promise you that if you come back a third time, you get to read an actual Discworld book. I just, I just want one Granny Weatherwax. Like that, just give me one Weatherwax book. Like that is it. Like, oh that no. Is my... Well, Tiffany Aching is like a Granny Weatherwax series. Right? Yeah, true. All right. Well, we'll keep that in mind. But, yeah. but look, you, you, you were talking about you wrote time travel. Which book was the time travel one that you wrote? Uh, so the time travel book I wrote is. A book called Monuments. So the elevator pitch for that is Legend of Zelda set in Sydney now. I, after years of writing serious sort of contemporary realistic YA, you know, where people like me who were gay and Greek were constantly on the margins of society considering, you know, their role in the world and how they fit in. I was like, hey, wait, why don't kids like me get to save the world sometimes? And so I still sort of dabbled in that seriousness, but I also wanted to write just a fun adventure book. Um, that's what Monuments is. I recently released its sequel and the conclusion to the duology, Rebel Gods, which is basically the kids contending with everything that happened to them in the first book. And now that I've had my fill of writing fantasy for the moment, I was like, great, I'm going to return to writing realism because I miss writing books about people going out and socializing and hugging. And then when I decided to return to realism, 
realism itself changed. <laughs> and, and, oh, no. It's a tragedy. <laughs> and now we're in this horrid dystopia where, you know, we live in a world of really bad world building where whenever we watch the news, it begins with, and the virus totals are, and the people in this far-off city cannot leave the house today, and this obviously bad political figure that we don't know why he would have been voted in is telling everyone that everything is fine. Like, <laughs> um... <laughs> Very badly written. So I was like, right, how do I tell a story... And I'm, I'm a very big believer in not cheating and setting a book in the nineties just because I find mobile phones too difficult to sort of write about. <laughs> like I'm a, I've been going on and on and on about that for years. And now I had to contend with a realism that I didn't really want to write and that I was fatigued with and I wanted to escape. And so I ended up with the greatest hit, which is my brand new novella that was just recently released um, to tie in with the Australia Reads campaign. Mm. Uh, and it's basically a girl named Tessa who goes viral, think Rebecca Black's Friday yep. during Melbourne lockdown. And now that lockdown is over, she is contending with all the ways she stuffed up her life in lockdown and trying to repair her greatest love. Hmm. I am very keen to read that. <laughs> I'm super excited. Is it a short book? Is that am I right in thinking that? It's a novella. It's, it's a 10,000 right. words. So yeah, cool. that's hmm. that I think that's going to be the future of paperbacks. I think little $3 sort of 10,000 word books. I think we're going to go back towards that trend because let's face it, no one's reading longer form stuff unless one of three authors wrote it. Yeah. And especially for teen fiction, there are so many barriers, price being one of them, to teens reading, and so many sort of things competing for their attention, and there's the pressure for people to release a book a year, and that affects quality. So I would much rather we all took turns releasing shorter fiction that was potent and well thought out, and the quality was there, and the price wasn't prohibitive hmm. to stop. Hmm teens actually accessing it so yeah yeah that's a future i can get behind yeah if i had a time machine i'd, I'd go back and change it <laughs> so that's that's what happens thank you thank you so much will no thank you for having me and uh, thank you listeners without you there's no point in us doing this so thank you for continuing to listen thank you for supporting the podcast as many of you do with subscriptions if you want to know more about that you can find out on our website at pratchettpodcast.com. If you want to support us without giving us any money, you can do that by reviewing and rating us on your podcast directory of choice, like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you happen to listen to your podcasts. You can also support Liz by buying a copy of Collisions, the liminal magazine collection in which you can find her story, The Voyeur, which is out now. Now, we should also tell you that there's one place we won't be appearing, which is in Sydney next year for Nullus Anxietist 7A, the Australian Discworld Convention. But that's only because the patrician has made a very wise, if difficult, choice to postpone the convention until 2022. Hopefully we'll be there, and we might try and find another way to make a live episode next year. But if you want more information, head to ozdwcon.org for all the details on when that convention is being rescheduled. Well, we'll be back next month. Liz, where I think, look, I think I can safely say that I don't think you've been more excited about an episode in the three years we've been doing this show. It, I think that's fair. Um, we're going to be reading the dampest book in the series, the first Moist von Lipwig book, yes. Going Faisal. Yes, yes, we are. And we're so excited about it. We're going to have two guests. 
it's a book about a con man. It's a book about communicating. And so we have got two expert communicators who are also experts in con men to come and talk about this book. So we're going to have uh, Australia's Honest Con Man and magician Nicholas J. Johnson and actor, comedian and maker of the film Sucker, which is also about conning people, Lawrence Lung on the show about going postal. So that should be a lot of fun. That's our December episode. Get your questions in for that if you want to ask them using the hashtag PratChat38. But until next time, make sure you put your trousers on one leg of time at a time. You've been listening to Pratchat, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast with Pratchatters Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Will Kostakis. Pratchat is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pratchat Podcast and listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via pratchatpodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchat37. Pratt Chat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrors. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.